dead. All right. I know he's dead. Throw him out of the car. Damn right, throw him out of the car. I'm glad he's dead. He's the one who started everybody calling me fuckhead. Don't let it get you down. What a lousy birthday. Hello there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am John Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. This is episode 64. I kept writing 65 in my notes and I was like, I'm pretty sure we already did 65. Yeah, because we made the joke about the year of my mom's birth at 65. Not really a joke. I've been thinking a a lot about that, yeah. It's been in my head. It's like, oh, Mario's mom was born in 1965. Because you're you're slowly building up all the information to steal my identity. Yep. Good. I hope that's. I hope you get something out of that. On my I podcast. hope instead of your social security number to use the contents of your pivotal film list to make sure people understand that I'm you. There is a, a G in my social security number. So. The people, people from the West Coast got letters instead of Ugh, numbers. It's terrible. Being from the West Coast is the worst. That's, that's a lie, by the way. What? Are they got numbers? Yeah. yeah. No, everyone got numbers. You think we're special? In, in the think pa- California-born people are special? I saw someone with a paper Connecticut driver's license today, and somebody like accepted it as a thing, and I was like, nope, there's nope. no way that's right. No, pause. Pause here for a second. Story time before we get into the beers. Let's get guest. So, in the state of Connecticut, a, a great, probably, Daniel Malloy proposition, the uh, ex-quote-unquote uh, governor of the state. He was governor. I mean, unfortunately. He was you know, elected twice. By because because there's no like nobody else ran against him. He should have been fucking primary. Tom Foley ran against him two times. Yeah, Republicans. We're not going to elect a Republican. A Democrat should have primaried the guy. I think I could say this. He used to be my boss, but now he's not. I like Ned Lamont. Yeah, what happened with Dan Malloy? Where is he? He's. I think he's teaching at BU now. Oh, really? Law school. Teaching. So much. maybe I shouldn't be saying much about that. Reading with um, dyslexia. Anyways. Now, in the state of Connecticut, when you renew your driver's license, you don't actually get your driver's license there. They're, the DMV, apparently, is probably overwhelmed by the fact that uh, having a printing machine there to print off your new plastic license. So they give you a paper license. Is that with, true? Yes. <gasps> so, at my last renewal, I uh, received a paper license, which is completely legally binding and acceptable at any establishment. Uh-huh. Um, as long as you actually have another photo ID, government accepted photo ID. Luckily for me, I do have a governmentally accepted photo ID, which is my work ID because it's the government. Yep. Um, so I had a trip to see a friend up in Massachusetts 
And I went to a bar, you know, and like every like Boston's really hard ass about carting, and I was like, oh, is that why are they so? No man, there's it's a bunch of colleges around there, so probably a bunch of underage people. Okay, all the Harvard kids. The I'm sure DD there's kids. no underage drinkers in Boston. <laughs> no, none. none. Um, I also already took a sip of our beer today. Oops. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, so I go to a couple bars and it's fine. Uh, I, I get in, you know, I show the one, and they're like, I don't, we can't really accept this, even though it's accepted. And so I show the second ID, and like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I get to the most rundown bar. My friend says this is like the shittiest bar. The Sill, as it's called. We're going to fucking bury yeah. a Boston, a Brookline bar. Take that. The, I think it's called like the Silhouette, but everyone calls it the Sill because it's fucking Ugh. garbage. Terrible. You know, so a garbage bar. And you expect a garbage bar would just look at you and pass like whatever. I show the paper ID. They're like, we can't accept this. So I'm like, well, okay. Show the paper ID and the government ID. And like, we can't accept this. Like, are you kidding me? Are they on some kind of program where they like... I don't fucking know. So I just like, no, nah, okay, I don't need your beer. So I go back to this other place. which was actually slightly upscale. has pinball machines. What? Like free pool tables. What kind tables. of pinball machines? Oh, they had Adam's Family pinball. Yeah. They had Kiss pinball. Lord of the Rings pinball. Lord of the Rings pinball is actually rated as like one of the top pinball machines wow. in history. Not, not really great. I'm not really a fan of it. Um, but the Adam's Family pinball is just a classic. I'm a big pinball guy, guys. Ladies. Um, I was just going to say something about that. <laughs> Add it to the list of Mario Pluses. But like, so, and the pinball machine's like 25 cents. The Paps Blue Ribbon on draft, $2. Not you a bad deal. Went back to this place, which is nice, kind of well-refined, not a shit fucking hole. Yep. Not like the sill. I came back and I was like, they didn't let me in. And they're like, they didn't let you in at the sill. The guy yeah. that was actually at the, the door, so they didn't let you at the sill. And I'm like, nope. And he's like, well, come back in. I had a pleasant two. I don't remember the name of the place though. I was pretty drunk at that you point. Win. But I had a pleasant two hours, and uh, now the sill can go fuck itself. So fuck you, the sill. <laughs> I hope you never fund us. One time I was in California, and we tried to get into a bar with my Connecticut license, and the guy was just like, "What is this?" And I was like, <laughs> "Connecticut." And he's like, "Where's that?" Like, <laughs> the in other the side United of the country. States. And he just kind of shook his head at us. We were just like, "Fine." We're Wait, just... he didn't let you in? No, we didn't get in to that bar. Did because the. The bouncer didn't understand that there was more states. I just don't think he wanted to be bothered. And at the time, me and my cousin didn't what? want to be bothered. What does he have either. to be bothered with? He just looks like I license. get it. I and get it. What? It's very far away. If you don't pick your head up once in a while, you don't know where you are. Okay, imagine in, in like my job, if I didn't want to be bothered. And I was like, sorry, person who's dying. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people at your job that don't want to be bothered. Fair point. Uh, today's beers. <laughs> and at your job, it just mean that work for the state of Connecticut. <laughs> oh, I'm fired. Uh, if I could be. Today's beers. <laughs> I probably can be. Who knows? Today's beers. Um, this, this is a test podcast. Yeah, can exactly. Mario get fired because of the podcast? I would be shocked, amazed, and, and overwhelmed if somehow... This trickled down to my work. It'd be funny if Ned Lamont called you into his office to fire you, and that was the one time you saw him wearing a tie. Or he, he puts call- us his firing or he, tie. He called me into the office and made me like his social media guy. And I'd be <sighs> like, have you seen my like? Have you seen the pivotal film Twitter? You do not want to make me a social media guy. You call us, call me up, and be like Tom. I got to do some editing. <laughs> Ned wants to do a Connecticut podcast. <laughs> no, no, I can do the podcast. The social media side of it, like doing Twitter. Yeah. Could you imagine that? You know how hard it is to like. 
Twitter's hard. Find something to post. Yeah, Twitter's difficult. like, what are you going to post? You know the worst part about Twitter is making accurate hashtags that you think go See, to somewhere. Oh, I, I, I understand that. My problem with Twitter is like... My problem with Twitter is like posting something on Twitter that I think is worthwhile of saying. Like, there's so much fucking news. But by the time I find out about that news, it's been posted on Twitter. So yeah. anybody that would gain that news, it's just like clouding the stream. We're the worst. It's part of the marketplace of idea. You know? Like, yeah. what is that? What is that? Pat, not Pavlov. Lilo? Who did the marketplace of ideas? I don't know. Let's just drink this. Anyways, today's beers are about variety. Variety because uh, you'll find out in a few minutes why it's about variety. So we'll be trying a handful of beers from one local brewery. Uh, we've had one of their beers before. I believe it was a, it was a coffee stout or it was coffee over porter. The, I, was, I think it was one of those beers with a porter with coffee added or mm-hmm. a stout with coffee added, something like that. This is Half Full Brewery out of Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, we are having their flagship beer, their Blonde Pale Ale Hybrid, 5.2%, as it was by memory, and that was correct. It is bright. Uh, throughout the day, the day, throughout the podcast, we will be drinking several different beers from Half Full, so you'll hear pauses where we talk about a new beer from Half Full. We say this because Half Full is, by beer snobs, considered slightly pedestrian, but you know what? Sometimes pedestrian surprisingly delicious suave I, I was going to come up I really thought I was going to come up with something clever there mm-hmm. like be pedestrian is slightly not pedestrian but I think I, I can't think of that's probably already the, for yeah, that's the name of like a like it's a catchphrase for a brand of like sneaker or something or it's something pedest- like, like pedestrian but suave but pedestrian not pedestrian I don't know <laughs> yeah alright alright Dink it. Let's get, let's drink this so we can justify the nature of this this episode. <laughs> Have we ever? Bright is good for what it is. I am not a fan of blondes. I don't like that. <laughs> Sorry, hold on a second. Blonde beers. Here's the thing with this beer, though. I think the pale ale. Front... This podcast is going to be evidence that I'm going to be single forever. <laughs> the pa- no, you like blondes and pinball. That's pretty good. It's a good combination. I also like brunettes, redheads. Um. The pale ale is very upfront, and then the blonde kind of overpowers like the the end of the flavor, and it bums me out because I don't like blondes either. It has it has this kind of weird weedy, like you know post, you know fruit taste to it. So the can the can art art and the description on the can says. Um, Beer, a uh, confluence of events sparked my bright idea. Beers one night in New York, a life-changing trip to who knows where, and a push from a friend all led to all open a brewery. And that's kind of what Half Full reminds me of. Half Full reminds me of a couple of friends who had an idea to have a brewery, and nothing about their beers sparks the imaginations. The imaginations? The imagination? But it's all well-intended and all very drinkable. It's a very drinkable beer. There's nothing offensive about it. It's not... Another local brewery, which I find highly offensive, which I won't name because yeah, I'm not going to throw fairness. it under the bus. But to, I guess to to your point, after the first sip, I don't taste. It's kind of it's more a pale. My than palate, a blonde. My, yeah, it's more of a pale than a blonde. But it's it, because of the blonde, it kind of washes some of the pale out, and now it's just a uh, 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 like a hoppy, watery taste. Well, the problem I think often with pales, it's not very bright. To be honest with you. No, no. But I think a lot of pales lean heavily into an attempt to be kind of a saturated IPA. Mm-hmm. And so, especially like a West Coast IPA, so they lean into the bitterness and the mm. hoppiness of it. 
Uh, this, however, isn't necessarily sweet or floral like you'd expect, like a New England IPA is, but it has a pale ale finish, has it a pale wants ale to be, feel, but it has a wheat beer or Hefenweizen kind of taste to it, which I think is fine. I think that's well, a nice combination. But I think it wants to have, yeah, it wants to, I guess, do both, but it wants to be a pale more than it wants to be a wheat. Which but I think the, is always a good idea. But the wheat, oh, I 100% think it's a good idea, but, but the fact that there's like a wheat there's like the ghost of a wheat beer inside of this, kind of bums me out. And but it also mutes itself. Like it's well, not very. Thing. It doesn't have like a very explosive, significant flavor. It's just kind of like, all right, I'm just gonna drink this can in ten minutes. You know this? Yeah. This is, this is the thing about half la half full beers I encounter, is the fact that I think half full is the perfect beer when you're gonna get sunburnt on a beach. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm ready. It's it's a good beach beer. Pivotal beach. Cause like. What is that? Not Lagunitas. Lagunitas is fine. What's what's a La- Langen coolers or whatever? The the fucking the oh, awful, yeah, yeah, yeah. awful shandy that? beers that people yeah, yeah. drink. Yeah. Um Lagunitas is actually pretty good. Sorry. Sorry, sorry for thinking you guys, your names are similar. Sorry. I the like other. the Lagunitas. But but the shandies, the shandy guys. I understand exactly what you're are talking about. Fucking garbage. They're disgusting. And people drink that as like, this is my summer beer. No. Like I'm gonna be barbecuing. Uh-uh. If I'm gonna be barbecuing and I don't wanna get drunk, but I kinda wanna get drunk eventually. This isn't a bad beer for well, that. Well, one day in the summer we'll record like a, maris- a marathon four-hour episode and we'll just drink... And barbecue? We'll drink and barbecue. We'll drink Founders All Day IPAs oh. the whole time and then we'll just see where we are. And then the next day Tom will listen back to the episode and be like, <laughs> delete. <laughs> we got to do that again, Mario. So why, Tom, are we drinking a confluence of beers tonight Do you of want me to answer that question or do you want me to beer? say like... I don't know, Mario. Why are we doing that? And then you'll oh, answer it. We should have talked about this ahead of time. How many we've done at this point? 30, 37 main episodes. We have 45 tracks on SoundCloud, I think. Or 46. So 46 tracks yep. on SoundCloud. Yep. You think at, at some point my naturalistic segues would have rung something. No. You, you think you would have you think you would have understood like, oh, Mario. Well, we're talking about that because it could go either way. Could go either way. It's not throw, a nat- it's a segue. Is, yeah, it's a good segue. But I don't know what you want me to say to your segue. Okay. Have you ever played? You ever played volleyball? I don't like volleyball. Yeah. The set and you spike you it. You want me to I'm, spike it? I'm setting it. You're spiking. But how do it. I know if it's a good set? I, most of my sets are pretty pretty good. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. I listen back to it. Ladies. I'm like, I listen back to it. I'm like, you know what? Mario, you did a good job blonde, with that thing. pinball, volleyball. No, don't get on the blonde thing. It doesn't have to be blonde. I'm this just saying they're included. This guy's got it all. Um, Do you know what else has it all? Criterion Channel, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we're talking about. A variety of movies available for you all in one spot. The Criterion Channel. Who is not sponsoring this episode? <laughs> yeah, because it sure. Oh my god, it sure sounds like they're sponsoring this episode, but they're not. No, they're not. We just. Do you think the Criterion Channel sponsors any podcast? I'm sure I they don't... do. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> like, how did this get made? I'm sure unspooled. You? you know, is running. No, ju- no, just how did this get made? How did this get made? That's it. How did this get made? And whatever Kevin Smith's podcast. I hope is that called. they. Um, Criterion starts a new. Like line of DVDs based on like how did this get made? Like the Uncriterion, they just release all the how did this get made? It's like two discs of bonus well, I mean, things and documentaries. Well, I mean, one happened. of the first Criterions was Armageddon. Maybe they just get back into the filmography so of Michael Bay Robo- and RoboCop. There you go. I mean, the RoboCop was they're on the in, same. Robo. RoboCop was on 
my pivotal list. But, I mean, could you imagine a two-disc Blu-ray of the island? The dream that that would be. The Scarlett Johansson Ewan McGregor movie? Yeah, I was talking about yeah, the Michael Bay masterpiece. Yeah. Or the, the criteria, like a 10-disc box of the Transformers movies. Oh, I know. What? Imagine, awesome. Imagine a disc just on The Rock's gains during Pain and Gain. Oh, yeah. I forgot Pain and Gain was a movie. Yeah. So did everyone else. Except for Michael Bay. You know what's funny about Pain and Gain is that The Rock looked bigger in like Baywatch than he did in Pain and Gain. I think. Maybe he was off. Maybe he was off his cycle at the point. Whoa! whoa, whoa, whoa <laughs> conjecture, whoa, whoa, whoa. conjecture, and and supposition. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, but we've just so we didn't get to. Um, we, one of the things we've been meaning to do since the Criterion Channel's been out for a month now, About a, right? a month officially. It had, had like a trial period where they were releasing kind of special movies for yeah. about two months, I believe. And we were uh, – one of the things we wanted to do when they kind of announced it was like, oh, we'll do um, an episode where we just kind of pick a Criterion movie. A movie or a couple of movies that are really – the only reason you're going to see them is because they're on Criterion. You know what I mean? Yeah, and Criterion – the only reason they're even available for you to even – look at is because they're on Criterion. And, and the, the formation of the Criterion channel was, of course, um, Filmstruck went under, it has a, closed as of November. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Filmstruck streaming service had all the, had a good five, six hundred Criterion yeah. films it on it. some, yeah. Um, and Filmstruck was shut down by, I believe, Warner Brother? Was Warner Brother? Well, I think Turner Filmstruck? Classic Movies was that the ones that closed was it down? The, it just wasn't making any money. Yeah, exactly. So Criterion said, we're going to get into this game. And, um, which is a great, I mean, which is a fantastic idea. I, yeah, I mean, I it's going it. to be a very niche market, but I think the films they've put on, they have about 450 films, according to Letterboxd that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just slowly updating their user face. Initially, it was a little rough, but now they're kind of getting to a spot where you can actually search films properly, mm-hmm. like by director, or yeah. by filmography, or year, or whatnot. Um, so it seems like there's about 400 to 500 movies, and these movies are kind of... The, some of the deep dives and some of the directors you've heard of, some of the films you've heard of. And there's some classics that, you know, Tom and I have missed and we've been talking about for a while now. Once a month or so, or as time comes where a movie comes out, where there's a week where there's no movies coming out. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, for some reason, Hollywood and even independent films decided that the week following... The 357.1 million dollar making Endgame would be a good week to you know not release new movies that are major films mm-hmm. that would even strike our fancy. So the first installment of uh, what would be the Criterion Channel deep dive for me and Tom is uh, today, and I think we picked a good one. Um, uh, I by think re, you mean you mean you? Well, I, no, but I oh, you could have said we don't want to do that. Um, my selection was Breathless, which I believe you've probably seen. I've seen Breathless, yeah. Yeah, Breathless is like one of my deep, but Breathless empty is, spots. Here's the thing, though, with, I think, when we do our Criterion episodes, is that um, Breathless is not a deep dive. You know what I mean? No, not all like, deep dive. Not, no, no, it's think, just, it's just uh, initially I had, I had wanted this to kind of be a fill-in-the-gaps of really solid classical film that is important, inherent film that maybe we've missed. To like say, like even people who are considered, I don't know what to call it, film buffs, but people who feel like they have extensive depth in film miss films every so often. Um, 
And that was my initial idea. Mm-hmm. Your idea was, no, let's just do movies that... Let's just go fucking deep. <laughs> yeah. Let's go movies that maybe no one has seen. That is to say, uh, I still will watch Breathless. Yeah, you gotta watch Breathless. Maybe I'll give, I'll give a short review at some point of, of my opinion. Or we'll do, we'll do a catching up and we'll do a, a Mishima and Breathless episode and try to conflate them. Oh, because I haven't seen Mishima by um, Paul Schrader either. Um, but this week we went to the Agnes Varda uh, collection that um, Criterion has. They have a lot of her movies. Um, I don't want to say most of her movies because she made a lot of movies, but they have many, many um, of her movies. All life is about borders, you know, language borders, ethnic borders, etc. And in the cinema, I try to erase the borders. Oh make them smooth between documentary and fiction, black and white and color, and cinema and art. That's why I had three lives, you know, as a photographer, as a filmmaker, now as a visual artist from the last 10 years. Again, trying to say, can we do something else than what we're supposed to do? So for me, it's still an adventure, you know. She passed away this year march 29th yeah she passed away march 29th she's, she's the she is the official poster cover of this year's Cannes film festival she's mm-hmm. an important huge essential part of french cinema um and kind well, of sparking almost... after like the french new wave and mm-hmm. kind of like growing from the french new wave no she i mean she was early like 54 i think was her oh, first movie she was she was no yeah she was she there. was in there but like maybe more of a prominence in in international cinema was kind of coming out of the French, the, well, the she, foundation yeah, of the French her and, her and um, Godard kind of um, came up together. Her and, I mean, and you know more about that. My French New Wave knowledge is pretty sparse, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, she came, it is for me too, but um, they came up together and they were just making roughly, you know, a similar type of movie uh, with a similar look to it. My... Um, and again, I don't know very much about her. I've watched um, the two movies we're going to talk about, Faces and Places, a documentary that came out in 2017, which got nominated for an Oscar. Her first Oscar, Oscar nomination. nomination. And then Although she lost to the film Icarus. Which is not to say that she's she's been, she's not, she's unknown perhaps in America. She's probably very well known in Europe. Um, a lot of her movies got nominated for um, Caesar Awards. No, I was going to say. Vagabond won a Best Actress for C- uh, a Caesar uh, at the Caesar Awards. Um, she's, you know, been in um, competition at Cannes a bunch of times. So it's not... Yeah, she's... She's, she's a very relevant filmmaker on the world stage. Uh, La Bonheur won for the Berlin Film Festival. She's a three-time Cannes winner. Um, never won the Palme d'Or, but... Uh, you know, she's won multiple years the yeah. Caesar for multiple, you know, Faces. Well, faces Places didn't actually win. Actually, she only won twice. The, she only won Caesar twice. But Faces but. Places won the Independent Spirit Award for Best Documentary. Won a bunch of Critic Circles Awards for Best Documentary. As it should. Faces and Places is kind of an amazing movie. Um, is it better than Icarus? Yeah, a hundred times better than Icarus. Um, but the movies we decided to kind of focus on are not... So Criterion has her big movies. They have a box set with her four major movies, Vagabond, Cleo 5 to 7, um, and a couple of other movies in that whose titles are in French, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, but they we have Le Bonheur, which she won the Berlin for. Yeah. Um, they don't have 
some of the other major ones yet. They don't have like uh, La Plague d'Agni. Um, that's that's kind of the one major one they don't have. That's a that's a later one. I think that's two thousand eight ish. Once again, again, we're not saying that we're experts on Agnes. No, I, haven't, I haven't seen these movies. Right, like, I just but they're there. I have they're around weird Wikipedia knowledge of and things. we can and actually after having seen these movies, I kind of want to go deeper. But so the movies we're going to do um, today, we're going to talk about is um, the documentary Mur Murs, which is mural murals in English, and then uh, Documentor, which is a fictionalized movie companion to Muir's Muir's um, documentor is also listed in the credits as its title being an emotion movie um, which I thought was really interesting um, but yeah so where should I actually you know what? and originally I believe these this was released as a double set it was uh, it's, what, it's part of the collection. eclipse series um, but they came out what's the eclipse series like just in case it's just like um as in me, I don't know what that is. It's like lesser known works or shorter works. Like sometimes they do it with shorts or they do yeah, it with... Yeah, because Gokumentera is barely over an hour and Mir Mir is, is like about one, 120 about minutes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just read from directly from the Criterion Channel description of these films instead of trying to describe them myself. Yeah, because that's, um, that's a... So Mir's Mir's is, uh, after returning to Los Angeles from France in 1979, Agnes Varda created this kaleidoscopic documentary about the striking murals that decorate the city. Bursting with color and vitality, Mir's Mir's is, an, is as much an invigorating study of community and diversity as it is an essential catalog of unusual public art. Um, do you want to start with this, and then we'll get into... Yeah, I, th- I think Mirror Mirrors is, is a good place to start. Um, um, and really, truly, that's kind of what it is. I mean, she doesn't... There's voiceover through the whole thing. It's very, it's a very European vision of um, American life. Because where the people that Mirrors she's... has their known in America. Yeah. Um, the people that she's talking to, the artists, like the Americans or the Chicanos, um, are speaking of these murals in much different terms and she is observing them in, I think. Um, so I guess famously well, I mean, in this... California, I mean, you might know better than this. I mean, there's, and so they're talking specifically about Los Angeles. There seems to be murals everywhere depicting any number of things from, you know, the Chicano struggle to, you know, kind of assert itself in the community to gangs kind of marking their turf or honoring their dead, or that one guy that painted that huge mural of the Trinity where the one Jesus was a Jesus's head was an actor. Yeah. Like he just, his, his most Jesus, <clears throat> the closest he gets to Jesus in his head is this actor guy. And I think I, I, I don't know the history of murals, but, um, it's kind of a cultural aspect that kind of, you know, permeated the coasts a lot during that time and then kind of spread outward in terms of an expression of a cultural identity or mm-hmm. a kind of like an individualistic identity. Um, the, the ideas of subversion or the ideas of, of expression and like using the mural as an artwork was kind of like a major part in some of the... I mean, I, I, I can't really say as an expert of this, but... You know, just from watching this documentary, you kind of get the idea that it's it's more of an interesting 
perspective of its its conflation with you know the use of advertisement they're used for kind of a very surface level presentation of the image versus kind of like a deeper representation of ideas or cultural identity mm-hmm. um and that's that's still prevalent i mean you know growing up like you know i saw the murals in la and whatnot but they were kind of just synonymous with murals you'd see anywhere mm-hmm. um you know i spent most of my time in vegas as a child and there were murals you know, prevalent, like epidemic kind of like endemic well, throughout, the throughout the city. And I think that kind of spread into mm-hmm. any sort of urban area. And I think the thing that was interesting about it is that, you know, talking about the endemic quality of them is that the people that seem most interested in them are the people that painted them in Agnes Varda are the people that are just kind of like, I want to hear all about the murals. I'm going to analyze the contents of the murals, what they represent, what the symbolism is to these images, you know, um, who these people are that made them, who uh, commissioned them. Like, there's the one guy that runs a strip club that paid, like, 600 bucks to have, you know, these women painted in silhouettes on his yeah. thing. And he's, you know, he even tries to get guys to come in on, you know, when he's standing out giving his interview. Guys walk by and he tries to, you know, use the girls that are standing out there with him to get them to come into the strip club. Um, the people that are walking down the street seem... The murals seem almost ubiquitous to them. They don't even really seem... It blends, they don't even it really blends seem really into the, the background. Um, to the point where at the end of the documentary, they're just kind of like, well, now they're just building things in front of them. Like, the 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 structure of the city doesn't really seem to care about them. And what I think is interesting, too, like mentioning what you said, is is the commercialization of these kind of like individual ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, this documentary to me is kind of... It's very surface level. So I didn't find it too incredibly interesting, but mm-hmm. the one introspection from it I got is is kind of like in that moment the commercial like the the Bavarda makes the point early on of contrasting you know the billboard with the mural, mm-hmm. the identity with the commercial subject. You know, she even says like kind of a mistranslation, which kind of comes back to commercialization, like image of commercialization versus. You know, image of thought. Well, and there's a like, couple of people that deal with that exact thing, like yeah. capital versus and like, and power. but also like the idea of how the murals themselves kind of got taken over and oh, and I, that's the one thing I kind of found interesting was the use of that in a a commercial sense, like using kind of this like subversion or this art that is meant to be non-commercial, meant to be expressive, and instead commercializing it. Well, when um, was it commercialized? Well, I mean, in the, in terms of like the strip club idea. Like, oh yeah, like, yeah. Like, and the, like there's, the there's Italian guy. Yeah, exactly. With the, with the or even the even so cream, much yeah. even earlier on, like the like the artist that's taking the photographs of the rollerbladers and that you know, like people trying to find some sort of um, space or profit or identity, like financial, not necessarily financial identity, but some sort of like ubiquitous personality in that mm-hmm. um beyond what it is. like it's it's presented early on as something that's kind of flows into the background it, it's something that's ephemeral that exists most people never notice it most people don't see it but these people are trying to capitalize on it even whether it's for financial or sort of like personal fame growth and i found that an interesting part of it like it's it's the the contrasting between well i think it's yeah it's, it's use as like just being in the background versus people trying to make something of there's this. definitely a very specific contrast to the motives of 
comparing and contrasting the motives of the people that make these murals. So you have the one guy, um, Willie Harone, who's in the punk rock band The Illegals, and he paints these very dark murals about, you know, that represent, you know, the nature of the Chicano life in L.A. and how they're mistreated by, you know, pretty much everybody. And then you have, you know, the strip club guy, you have the ice cream guy, you have the Holy Trinity, Jesus is an actor guy, um, who, or the Afghan guy, the guy that painted like an Afghan that his grandmother made him in all of his murals, yeah. was just, I mean, you I mean, that guy was really good and really interesting, but like the reasons that everyone painted these murals was all completely different to the point where when she finally gets to that guy who was painting that mural or was working on painting that mural for like 12 years around the slaughterhouse and like showing this kind of these pigs in this very idyllic pastoral setting when inside there's a bunch of guys like actively sharpening their knives, putting on their like obviously like their throat slitting gloves. Yeah. Um, you know, when outside this guy is just kind of like touching up blue sky and, and green and grass. That's, and that's why I find actually that's an interesting kind of comment. And it blends really into the second film we talk about. Um, like, like these two films, I think, work extremely well in regards to motivation. Um, you know, documentaire talks about like faces and the presentation of the faces and how we read faces mm-hmm. um, early on. And Miramiras kind of says in this you know, quietly, at least, at least for me in a similar way of these murals kind of represent the facade by which the, the image that is being presented by the artist, you know, not necessarily what the artist is or what the artist has not internalized, but what the artist is trying to say, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, an aspect of any part of art, but like this, that, now, especially with that slaughterhouse, you know, sequence feels more prevalent in the set or even you know the advertisements in terms of um like the strip club scene uh just feel more like the idea of this creation meant to be seen you know that this this what what you want people to see yeah um and, and what's well, like why that's interesting is like the murals do flow into the background so often often they're unseen often they don't don't matter and when you take a look at it what you're actually getting is not necessarily a reflection of even the person's motivations or whatnot because they're so ubiquitous they're so ephemeral they're so basically they, they flow into the world around them that people take from it what they will take from it despite intention um and even more than that you know the person's intention itself might not be authentic or not be be accurate to to like what they're really feeling and what what the inner self is and i only say that you know in companionship with documentaire yeah i mean it's interesting i mean it's kind of it's the 80s you know late 70s 80s Everyone's roller skating. As we know, LA. With, as we know, with Agnes Varda saying, as we show here with the roller with the roller skaters in front of disco music. Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, it's kind of it's a little bit fascinating to watch now and how like ridiculous life in 1979 LA was. Well, it's it's similar in a lot of ways to uh, Shadows last week in the sense of uh, it is a nice kind of slice of 
uh, you know, most documentaries kind of have this truncated image of of the world of the time, whereas this really leans into it. And Shadows in the same way leans into 1950s New York, and that's the most interesting aspect of that is the guerrilla style on the street sure, filmmaking. Sure. And this has a lot of guerrilla style. You know, this and documentary have a lot of guerrilla style kind of like filming the world as it is at that time. And it's it's interesting mostly for me as, you know, a, a very realistic view of this world at this time. I One of the things I like about it, too, is that it seems like because of the ubiquity of the murals, um, it almost seems like she's catching some of these people off guard in the sense that she's not ambushing them. You know, there's not, you know, she's not doing that. Um, it's not walking up to people and they like, explain your mural. But it's one of those also, things where... Also, mirrors means walls in French, in English. Oh, there you go. It says walls, walls. Wall, walls. Um, she's not ambushing people, but she does seem to be putting people on the spot saying, like, I'm really interested in what this represents. And they're like, wait, what? Really? Please explain it to me. And people... It's just a small little French... And people explain a it. small little 60... Yeah. But she's about... 55, 60 at this time, year old French woman. And people are explaining it, and sometimes their explanations are good, and sometimes they seem like they're very forced, and sometimes, like, the Jesus actor guy, they seem crazy. Um, But everything's presented very... It's presented very flat, but also very accepting. And perhaps that's the European looking at American culture thing, where they just kind of find everything fascinating, and they're not... There's not a lot of judgment here, which I think is... Well, you can which I think is, uh, uh, I, I can appreciate, because I think in an American... I especially or like not even the, American. You compare it to, like, a Herzog. Herzog would look for something in there. And, well, and, she, and doesn't, Herzog, she doesn't do that. And she Herzog just, is maybe a bad example. He's a good example and a bad example in the sense that he tends to kind of just present documentaries about things just... As they're happening, he doesn't have this overarching thing that kind There's of not, ties things together. Still, but he, he does do that sometimes. He does, but he does like try to read into things, right? And there's and not so she, much of a reading. She tries into to this. read into it too, but she doesn't present a little bit. But she doesn't present that kind of overarching. It's not like a supposition. It's it's more like a, an inquiry. Well, I think the the thing that I kept coming back to is that there's not like a um, a, and I'm just trying to think of like the most American documentaries that exist. There's not a supersize me quality. <laughs> you know what I mean? I to say supersize me. There's not like a theme that kind of sticks out or that the movie is tied to. The theme is literally just L.A. murals, people that painted the murals. There isn't like a mural that's being painted throughout the whole documentary in that we get to see, you know... The the the, yeah, the 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 process or you know and the results there's and no like what that person goes through narrative crutch like crutch no no no, no. It's it's just, just, it just is a presentation of of the subject in the moment and it continues through that band. and give you examples of it but it's like I landed in L A and the second you landed in L A and you get on the freeway you see murals and you see billboards. Here's well, the th- now here's the story. And Faces and Places is a lot like that, too. Like well, Faces and Places is pretty similar, right? Like, it deals with... Kind of. I mean, it's... it's murals in Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's France, big scale right? France, yeah. And they're just printing them out and pasting them, and they're just talking to people. And there's a lot of staging and things like that, because they're making them as they go. So is, but the, is, there, this... is there a reference back to Mirrors, Mirrors in? Yeah, because he... The guy that she's working with, JR, the artist, says... He specifically says, 
when they're kind of talking in the, a staged but not staged conversation about, um, I mean, Faces and Places reminds me a lot. We'll talk about Faces and Places again when we talk about one of my movies um, oh, I was like, in I the remember, 40s. I was like, I don't remember 40s, Faces and Places being on your list. It's not, but it's, <laughs> it reminded me a lot of one of my movies that's on there where it's a documentary, but there's lots of staged um, scenes, but there's a lot of truth in those staged scenes. So the uh, JR, the artist, the French artist that she's working with, talk specifically about Cleo 5 to 7 and Mirrors Mirrors and things that inspired his inspired her him to want to work with him um paper paper shuffle 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 shuffle, shuffle. um so there is and he also references and she also references too and, and Godard kind of plays a big a big role in the movie even though he's not in it um there are these references back to her work, um, which is really fascinating and kind of, you know, pushes you to kind of want to find out more about this stuff. And I think it's interesting to put it's that's why I think I'm, I was glad we did these movies together. We didn't. I always forget Godard's not dead. That's no, he's not me. dead. He just had um, he's he's got a new movie. A movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, Documentor then, which goes right into this. I mean, it was made after this movie, but it references this movie. It has narration in this movie, but is a fictional account of a French woman living in L.A. at the time when this movie was made. Which is kind of fascinating because she has to... The French woman, Emile, or Emily, uh, played by Sabine Mamou, actually does voiceover for... Mirror mirrors in the film, and it's you know they use some of the same murals. Um, they're not talking about the murals. There's no analysis of the mural, but if you link the two films together, you get a kind of sense of what the murals. It's a meta narrative. Represent yeah. perhaps. Something that sh- this character is lacking that the Americans, the Americans, you know, you know, people that live in America are, are immigrants, seem to be not lacking. Where in the sense that she's really trying to figure out how to get along here in America, and everyone else seems to already know how to get along in America. And they're painting murals about it. Or they're doing whatever. Um, is that... Me- that's not, that's not what I took from that. Let me just let me let me read the thing right. from Criterion Channel. Um, this is about Documentor, 1981, um, so a couple years after Mirror Mirrors or a year after Mirror Mirrors. Uh, this small-scale fiction about a divorced mother and her child, played by Agnes Varda's own son, um, Matteo Demi. Her husband's name is Jacques Demi. Um, Leading a quiet existence on L.A.'s margins was made directly after Mirror Mirrors, and though Documentor is different in form and tone from that film, the two are complexly interwoven with overlapping images and ideas. The meditative portrait of urban isolation overflows with subtle visual poetry. I mean, so the story is that there's really no story. There's a French woman who's been divorced, and she's trying to find a place to live, and then she finds a place to live, and she's sad. And there's a lot of voiceover, and she misses her husband. I mean, that's the that's the whole story. And even the thing I referenced about her doing a voiceover for Mirror Mirrors is not like a plot point. It's just a thing that happens to her. Um, 
You know what I mean? It doesn't lead her into anywhere else. Um, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a, a part of her life. It's just a thing that happens. Um, so, what did you take away See, from? For me, Mir Mir is, is kind of like the, the 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 facade presentation of of what people want you to see. Whereas documentaire, it, and I think documentaire early on, it's when she's talking about faces. She says that you could see faces and like they what they represent, and and you don't know what they say. You just know when their eyes are closed that they sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, she can't read people. And I think documentaire tries to do this more of an inner monologue sure, of sure, the sure. person. Yeah. And I think it's 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 that juxtaposition between the the intent of what you want people to see versus the inner self. And, and, you know, she, you know, um, Emily kind of has this, this like issue with, with seeing that, you know, with seeing that kind of inner self and like dealing with the inner self. Um, and I, I think that to me, that's exemplified with just how like the rawness of the film, like, like those lingering moments of, just you know, non-actors being shown about their business, you know, uh-huh. like like the was it the the baker? It's just kind of like an establishing shop of the baker talking. I think it's like a baker or some store owner talking to people, and it like lingers on that during the narration, not even explicitly talking about that, but it's just like these people in their inner lives, mm-hmm. um, with no supposition or no kind of um, narrative crux, or even you know that couple arguing where they were you know and gets Farda asked if she could like film them and they're like yeah whatever sure and they're actually just arguing just fighting yeah they're really just truly fighting it's just like this inner monologue not inner monologue but this, you know this inner presentation of the self mm-hmm. um, and to me I think documentary is an interesting juxtaposition with Mir Mirrors because of the what you want people to see versus what you really are yeah, that's interesting. You have a much more cynical view of Mir Mirrors than I do. In the sense that, like, you're playing... This is not, like, a criticism. I think you just think it's interesting. You're just like, like, you're you're just going, like you're fucking wrong, Mario. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Um, flip the table. Podcast over. Damn, that was my computer. Um, hard, hard computers. They made a point in Mirror Mirrors about the idea that uh, some of the painters of the murals really see the murals. I think Agnes Varda, in her narration... Um, uh, tackles this as well that they see these murals as representative of a kind of collective thought that they are expressing a community felt emotion or feeling and are putting it on a building in that community and I think it's really interesting I think that you know we'll say the word juxtaposition like a hundred times I guess when we're talking about these things um, the juxtaposition between these two things is that where the murals is just like one image after another expressing some kind of collective thought. And even, I think that's correct, even in the people that are just kind of making the murals for themselves, and that that one guy makes a point of saying that he's like a born-again Christian. So he obviously sees, whether we want to believe it or not, and I think probably the scale of the murals is true of this as well, that he speaks for born-again Christians. This is how he sees um, the Holy Trinity, it is representative of a much larger idea, which is Christianity. And I think the juxtaposition between that really big idea with Emily's complete inability to be to be a part of that and her monologue being so interior in the sense that she's just kind of... She's broken her experience down into like this collection of words, almost. And that, you know, they go over this after they do the faces monologue they go over they go deeper and they're just everything's just words um she's really trying to 
ex she's try it seems to me that she's really trying to fit into the larger fabric of what is happening around her and she just can't um to the point where she you know she she's in her boss's house and i guess her boss is some is an actress right a french actress who lives mm. in la um and she's you know she's working for her and her boss is out of town and then she they, her boss is supposed to record this monologue, and she's not there. And then Emily ends up recording the monologue. And then later in the film, she ends up back at that house, and she takes off all her clothes, and she lays down on the cashmere bedspread, and she just lays there. But there's that really compelling image of, like, her face being split by the mirror. It's, like, representative of, like, a fractured person. And she's doesn't – I don't think she understands whole, fully how she's fractured. You know what I mean? Like, I don't – she just is, and she doesn't – really know how to come to grips with it and i think that's where the juxtaposition comes in especially with the the americans who are making their murals is that they get where they stand they may not like it but they get it and she doesn't get it yeah um and it's i think it's it's not a movie see it's the thing i had a bigger problem with documentor for the first like half hour and then after I got used to its rhythms and kind of what it was trying to do, I was like, okay, I really like this now. I really like thinking about these movies and kind of – I really like her images and how she – what she does with the camera. I really like the idea of bringing French new wave techniques with like that, that you know, the slow panning camera um, and it's really, to L.A. And it's really kind of provocative and has a um, like voyeuristic – sense to it too in a lot of ways Even, which is different from like american films though because, especially during that time yeah like, like the voyeurism in american films what they attempted to do still have a very staged presence yes. to it yeah yeah um you know you look at like some, some of the grindhouse cinema of that time would try to have this voyeuristic level to it but it, it would feel it would it would have this you know state of unnaturalness to it. Well, I'm just um, trying to think of some of the... pretense. And this this yeah. is really unpretentious and in, in its I'm... presentation of the images. It's kind of just like a floating camera. A very kind of... You know, not a dreamlike state, but something that's kind of like lingers. That just is kind of there. Just there. I mean, there's a, there is, like we talked about you know, verite last week, and there is a very verite quality to this. But I think that I mean, some I almost, of those... I wouldn't say it's verite. I would well, say it's like a lazy gaze sort of thing. Well, that's what I was going like to say. Like a blank slate glaze while you're inside your head. The presence of those techniques in, like, an American setting that, you know, you and me understand, and that, you know, a lot of other people that live in America understand, like, this is what L.A. looks like, or this is what a certain socioeconomic situation in America looks like to bring these really elegant like techniques to bear on that is has that kind of like dreamlike quality where you're just kind of going in and out of these alleys and these windows and these it's not even dreamlike it's it's like contemplative it's like when your head's somewhere yeah, and yeah sometimes yeah, the things good, you see yeah, yeah. sometimes just the things you see spark something in your mind but most for the most part you're kind of just like rummaging through your thoughts and this is what this film has is is there's moments that the images connect to what they're saying in the narration. A lot of times they, they don't. They're, they're jarring. Not jarring in a sense, but they're just kind of – they're images that are there as a person's kind of like having the stream of consciousness sort of thought. And, 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 you know, sometimes there's a connecting pattern to that, but a lot of times it's just kind of 
an image that kind of like loosely fits with the narrative. Well, there's jarring images that are meant to be jarring, no, like course. that naked guy. But yeah. then there's images that are kind of jarring that aren't really meant to be jarring, like when um, Martin is alone in the house and he's kind of shooting, he's fake shooting that guy that's digging across, you know, the other side of, I guess, the, wherever they live. Yeah. It's not a street, per se, it's an alley, it's whatever. Um, and then that woman just comes and gives him a Pepsi and then, like, takes his shirt off. And, like, she really lingers on that stuff, and you're just kind of like, I don't really know how I'm supposed to feel about this. I'm not, Obviously, it's not transgressive in any way, but the way that she presents it, you're just kind of like, well, what is this? It's like, a pecu- it it's peculiar. Pre- it's transgressive, peculiar. it's not. It's, it's a peculiarity. It, it's um yeah, but it's interesting. It's an oddness, but it's interesting, and it's not like and it's not, but it's interesting because it's so not interesting. Yeah, you know, it's just like a thing that happens, but you're just like, what? Is but this? it's it's what an interesting this? moment, like that is that breaks up a lot of the monotony. And I don't want to say monotony. I say monotony in like the nicest terms, because they're interesting images. They're they're very contemplative images in comparison to the the narration. Um, they kind of. They, that's where the effortlessness comes in, kind of like this this dreamlike quality to the narration and this kind of like floating. Camera. Well, now you're very anti-narration. We're going to have a narration conversation later in this episode. Is the nature of this narration different than the nature of the narration from the other movie? Do you, I mean, or uh, film, in other movies that you don't have? Narr- this film is narration. I because mean, a lot of times, narration, it's not really narration. It's really just kind of like. Like you said, stream of consciousness, just kind of like thinking about things. It's not moving the plot at all. No, there's it's no just, plot. There's no, really yeah. no plot to be moved. Sure, sure, so that's sure. fine. Like, like I have a problem with narration that is meant to move you somewhere. Like that, it's narration. If your film is narrating for the sense of unto itself, that's fine. Uh-huh. I have a problem with narration where it's like, oh, we need to get somewhere. We don't have the time to do this, or we don't have the energy to actually show you this. We're just doing this to yep. make it easier. That's where I have a problem. This is when it's unto itself, which this is, it, I'm fine. When with there's it. two different narrators kind of talking about the same thing. Yeah. When the director cuts in in the beginning to tell you some things about the woman you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. No, and, and when that's all there is like to this, yeah. you know, is is that and, and the the move, the plot the necessity of plot movement is is not there. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, 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 if you're I, a plot guy, this is not your. Uh, not your <laughs> I imagine just watching a couple of, like I watched um, like half of Cleo five to seven, just because I wanted to see what like the old Agnes Varda stuff looked like compared to the new stuff or the newer things, um, and I imagine that a lot of her movies are not heavy on plot. No, um, I, I would assume. But I think I mean, actually, I'm gonna go back and watch more of it because I'm. I find her very fascinating. I find her really compelling director. And even the way, like, and so Cleo um, 5 to 7 is mostly in black and white, except for one of the, open, like, the opening sequence. Um, her use of black and white is is very compelling and very different from how other people were using black and white in 61. Um, and I want to, I think I want to explore that more and, and see what that looks like. Yeah. And that's, I mean, why the Criterion channel is kind of amazing and why... It's feeding my, you know, it's like pumping straight opioids of movies right into my veins. Well, yeah, and what's nice is, is just a curation of, of the Criterion Channel. Like, I'm looking right now at, like, the Columbia Noir, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, just the, their collection of, of things they put together. And you get something like The Big Heat and So Dark Tonight, which are movies that are pretty commonly known mm-hmm. with the noir things. But then there's ones like... Um, maybe I should know this movie, but Experiment in Terror, which was 
Blake Edwards follow-up to Breakfast and Tiffany's huh. and just as detoured and worn. I've never seen, heard of this movie. Maybe that'll it's, be the it's next over, one. It's over two hours. Stars Glenn Ford. But, um, you know, so you get those those things where it's just like, huh, I'm interested in these. I know that this part of cinema, mm-hmm. you know, like I want to have a deep dive into other elements to, you know, in, increase the vernacular of film. So your cinematic vocabulary is a little and, stronger. Yeah, and to do that, but also just to kind of like Experience see something stuff. that you're never going to see otherwise. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the stuff that comes out now is just all the same. It's all the same stuff. But, I mean. I mean, there's other things. We're going to talk about some of those things. Um, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's all the same episodes. stuff. But I would say like. No, but like. But like at the same time, movies at that time. Or I'm sure but some we of the main this... features of. You know, 1981 were all the same. People were seeing, yeah. Some of those movies are going all the same stuff that you're getting nowadays, and it's you know maybe some of those movies that are the documentary or, or the Morven Caller or whatnot oh, of um, their age today that that are those movies now we just haven't heard of. You know, that that haven't kind of grown in the conversation. They didn't make 357 million dollars. Point one. Point one dollars, yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Uh, guess we'll be right back with our number sixty-four. Welcome back. Uh, we are going to do Mario's sixty-four in just a second, but first we opened a new half full. It is uh, refresh. It is a rotational pale ale, whatever that means. It is a five they, they brew percent it alcohol by times, volume, I believe, and every time it has a new kind of like flavor, which makes me think of moles, where it's just kind of like you just cook it forever and you just dump new things in it, and, including chocolate, and it changes. It, it'll just change the flavor. And so today, I just realized that moles doesn't just mean chocolate in Spanish, which mm-hmm. is why I always thought. no, it can have anything. Every so time I saw the term mole, I just saw chocolate. Mole, that's so I just chocolate, it was chocolate mole. There you go. Let's do it. I didn't. Oh, man, um, so I, I don't like this beer very much. Oh, you, you it tried it? It's kind of like an armpit. I just was drinking it before we started talking. It's a it's a fine pale ale to me. It is. It, I, you know what I hate? I hate it is when they make soda e. I hate soda e beers. It's very soda e. It's very soda e. It it tastes weird because of the soda e ness and. I don't know. Maybe it's just flat, but it's not flat. It's like hypercarbonated. It's weird, but it's five percent. So very who cares? Yeah. Um, it's not bad. You know, it is not bad either. Is my number sixty-four? Typically, I have a story presented with my movie because I have some sort of personal deep connection with the film. I don't really have a deep connection with this film. Uh, in uh, around two thousand one. I had heard about this writer, director, mostly at the time, director. I believe his brother wrote his first movie. Um, was that true? We're going to find out right now. I look it up. His second, well, his second, his second major film, which he did write. Um, hadn't seen following until years later. And I had really appreciated his first movie, Memento. And so I, I found myself drawn to his second film, his, his major kind of bursting onto the Hollywood scene. Uh, little did we know that it really wasn't his major bursting onto the Hollywood scene. That would be his next film. Mm-hmm. And then from there, every movie he would make after that would be a major cinematic event, including a movie we talked about extensively 
a few weeks ago in Inception. Uh, my number 64 is the 2002 follow-up to the 1997 Norwegian film. It is Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. They brought him in to solve an unspeakable crime. Detective Dormer, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm Detective Ellie Burr. Welcome to Night Mute. So incredible to be working with you. The Leland Street murders was my case study at the Academy. Someone out there just beat a 17-year-old girl to death. Your job is to find him. Doesn't say in the report that he clipped her nails. He washed her hair. No mutilation? Not this time. He tortures him, makes him do things, and keeps him there for three days. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. Police! What Detective Dormer doesn't know is that murder is only part of the plan. <sighs> Insomnia is the story of two LAPD detectives who move, go to a small fishing town in Alaska to investigate the murder of a teenage girl. Um, while they're there, one of the detectives, played by Al Pacino, in what I believe may be the last role where Al Pacino tried... <laughs> was this maybe Jack is this and Jill? Pre any given Sunday or uh, this is post any given Sunday? Any given Sunday is ninety nine. Oh, okay. So yeah, this is has got to be it. I mean, Jack and Jill would be his last movie he tried. What, was he in Rocky and Bullwinkle, or is that? Oh, it's no, De Niro. That's De Niro. Also, right. I believe De Niro. I believe that is also pre Insomnia. Wow. I think that might also be ninety nine, maybe two thousand. They were in a movie together that they filmed in Milford, Connecticut. Eighty eight. Is that eighty eight minutes? No. No, it was um. Uh, something kill, righteous kill, righteous kill, right, right. I did not see that. That's Fifty Cent, I believe, is in that too, right? <sighs> He's also a Connecticut resident. So is yeah. he really? Yeah, he owns a house in Greenwich. I think. Is that why he always shows up for his vodka things at, at liquor stores? I don't know. He has a vodka. I've never tried it because I don't drink vodka and I don't give a shit about Fifty Cent. That'll be the next um, when we do pivotal history. We'll drink vodka while we do oh, it. Yeah. God, our top one hundred history moments. Let's do it. <laughs> While drinking vodka, we won't get very far, but anyway. Uh, during the pursuit of the the murderer um, in the Alaskan fog, has I guess, is Alaska fog a thing? I don't know. Uh, Will Dormer, suffering from the early onset of insomnia, uh, kills his partner, Hat Beckhart, played by the criminally underrated character actor Martin Donovan. I like Martin Donovan. I like Martin Donovan a lot, but every time I see Martin Donovan, I secretly think he's a bad guy. Well, he's kind of a bad guy in this. He's not a team player. No, he's not a team player. But every time I see him, I'm like, oh, he's definitely the bad guy. He's becoming like the the. He was like the 2000s Pedro Pascal. Oh like yeah, yeah. Every time you see Pedro Pascal, not well, Pablo he's, Escobar. He's, he's in the new, um, the stupid Disney Plus Mandalorian movie that John Favreau is. <laughs> just like his director. Just, just burying Disney Plus already. Or John Favreau. What are we burying? Both. Let's do both. I mean, he wasn't—he wasn't the bad guy in that Netflix movie. Um, not Tall Strong, but the Netflix movie of Ben Affleck that Triple. Frontier. Oh, Triple Frontier. Yeah, he wasn't the bad guy in that. Spoilers for Triple Frontier. Don't see it. Don't, yeah, the bad guy in Triple Frontier is the people that made Triple Frontier. <laughs> yeah. Um, and from there, kind of a, a long game of cat and mouse, and and brewing guilt uh, forms from you know the the murder of his partner. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting movie to show up on my list, and like I said, I kind of I kind of made this list 
off the crux and, and made it truly from the heart and from the gut. And for some reason, this movie came here on my list when I made it. And I, I revised this list a couple times, but it still stayed there. Mm-hmm. I watch it back, and I still appreciate it in a lot of ways. They get these early kind of low, I want to still say lo-fi elements of Christopher Nolan. Well, he's got his whole team there. So Wally Fister's doing yeah. the you know cinematography. The editor's got, the same. Like I think Con- is Dottie Dorn. Did Dottie Dorn she... move on? No, Dottie Dorn does Memento, but Dottie Dorn doesn't, doesn't do this one. No, Dottie Dorn moves off to do. She does. Uh, she is it? She is Dottie Dorn. Oh. I see Dottie, and I think it's a woman. Yeah, Dottie Dorn. Um, sorry, Dottie Dorn. Uh. She goes on to do like End of Watch and Fear. She ends up doing like David Ayer films later, oh, which like okay. it's still good work. Because like End of Watch, Sabotage, and Fury, for has End of Watch is great. Fury's pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Sabotage is bad, mm. but they're all really well edited. She's a good editor. But, like, so, uh, yeah, like, End of Watch is a great movie. And Matchstick Men. She did Kingdom of Heaven. She did the the famous like director's cut was kind of edited by her. She even has um, commentary with Scott on the director's cut version. So she's solid. I mean, Is it just solid. her yelling at him, why did you make this movie? <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, why didn't you what make the, the fucking the director's cut? You still haven't seen the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. I am not going to see any cut of Kingdom of Heaven. And I'm going to be okay. It is ridiculously weird how much better director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven is from the fucking trash dumpster. Well, is the director's fire. cut like three hours and 20 minutes long? Uh, I think it's a little long. Yeah, it's a little longer, but it's just... The battle, that final battle of Jerusalem, so much better. Ah, oh, battle of Jerusalem. Well, it's a couple weeks. We're gonna get to Jerusalem battles. Um, but it's it's got a lo-fi presentation. So it's still got kind of like the kinks of that you would see in Memento, kind of like the the unironed. Well, uh, and, and still the the finding the voice of Nolan, but it still so represents yeah what Nolan would do and the interesting kind of shot like the wall like the communication definitely between him and Wally Pfister. There's still some really interesting shots that sequence where they're kind of running across the uh, the logs mm-hmm. is is always so just interesting that, that even that kind of really typical scene where he kills his partner Eckhart. It's still like shot in such a way that it's intriguing, even though it's kind of in the fog and obscured. Well, there's it's, always it's, a cl- it's I mean, always because it's Wally Fisher and because of Christopher Nolan. There's always a clarity. Yeah. So even when you can't see anything, it's like the clearest not being able to see anything that you've ever experienced. And part of the and this is something I noticed with the Agnes, um, the Varda movies is that there's um, a lot of. Cinem- you know, cinematographers and directors, I suppose, kind of like askew the details to just kind of give you like the broader picture. But like Christopher Nolan and Wally Pfister never do, so you get like a full textured sense of everything that's happening. And well, yeah, and and that's interesting too. It's 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 edited in such a way, and 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 the presentation of it, it still has like these flaws and these kinks, but they're still so inherently interesting. And from like a story presentation, um. I actually really do find the the ninety seven Norwegian film m- more interesting. I do too, which is odd because Be- a lot of the reviewers of this movie found that he Im- thought that they improved, like the relationship. No, I. I but think I disagree. I think there's a lot of like subversion to to the ninety seven film, mm-hmm. like kind of just the Ingstrom, the you know Ingstrom versus. Um, 
versus Dormer, kind of like Dormer dies in this version, whereas Ingstrom kind of like gets along, basically just drives off. Uh-huh. It. Um, and there's like a subversive quality to that. It's, it's a lot more kind of raw, the 97 version, that kind of feels like in the 2002 version uses tropes and, and like effectively at times Nolan uses kind of like those tropes especially the scenes in like the hotel room where he's tired and whatnot and just trying to use the light getting mm-hmm. to him and everything whereas the 87 version so bright constantly and so gray uh-huh. a lot that it, it kind of gives this droning sense it, 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 it has an insomniac kind of quality to it. Like I've had my share in college of like those moments of just being awake for 36 to sure. 48 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a certain sort of grayness to it. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, I saw one of the, the, my top 10, one of my top 10 movies I saw after not sleeping for 36 hours. And I was about ready to fall asleep and I stayed awake throughout all of it. What about- and like became more woken up. And that was, like, the first moment that made me realize, like, this is one of my top films of all time. What about Bob? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> That's the reason why all ten of my films are Richard Dreyfus features. <laughs> oh, what is it? Krippendorf's Tribe? Yeah. I love that movie. That movie's actually, great. I don't mind the movie at all. So it's interesting. And the fact that, like, I came back to this film, and I sat there for the longest time... And I tried to find a justification for why it shows up on the list of where it does. This is, I think, the last time we talked Christopher Nolan. Yeah, yeah, um, Christopher Nolan is. Like, a, you know, we talked about Batman Begins. We talked about Inception. Bat- Dark Knight. Dark Knight. Um, we're we're big Nolan people, as you could see from the last episode. Yeah. But this isn't necessarily. This wasn't on my list because it was Nolan. I, I thought back, like thinking of one is on my list. Why is it on my list? And I think this is going to be the, the point of contention. Hmm. This is on my list because it is, to me, the film I can justify from the trio of films where I went from hating Robin Williams, <laughs> and it's a hard thing to say now, like, after his struggles and, you know, his suicide, yeah. um, to really loving Robin Williams. The, the, the trio of films he made, One Hour Photo, which I, I think is a a much actually kind of better film. It's just, it's just, a, it's a lesser film in the sense that it's a, a smaller, more contained film, but it has its strongest performance. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just Mark Roman. It ruins it with his over direction. Yeah, exactly. But stuff, like yeah. fucking Rob Williams acts the shit out of that. Movie. Michael Vartan. That's all you need. <laughs> exactly. That's all you need. Uh, Death of Smoochie, which is fun, but it's almost too fun. Death of Smoochie almost made my list. It's, this movie was a big movie for me. It, it's great. It's great, but there's like a, a certain kind of funness. And I like don't know how great it light. is, but there's I like saw light, it a lot of times. There's a lightness to it, um, which is weird. Like that's that's the kind of thing about the DeVito movies. Like all of DeVito's movies are really kind of like there's weird, creepy and weird, but they're always so white. Like at the end, you can't help but kind of like smiling throughout them. So like you kind of end up forgetting about him mm-hmm. afterwards like even though they're really great movies yeah like devito can't like i kind of always kind of assume devito's kind of a light fun guy like this is uh, once again suppositions mm-hmm. like this this is me saying devito sure on this, this is me saying devito getting off his cycle yeah he's been Could doing you imagine if he's doing cycles too that'd, <laughs> that'd be, be awesome that's how he says fit <laughs> to do always sunny philadelphia yeah. ria perlman demands he does cycles get it together 
was um, in the bear. But it's so, like, that movie's so, like, light in a sense that you kind of forget about it, even though it's really solid. But Insomnia was the movie that, like, all the components come together. Um, you know, Hilary Swank knocks it out of the park in this, like... Love Hilary Swank, yeah. I'm not... I do not like Hilary Swank. I don't like you her do not voice, like Don't Cry. Um, I... I no, have, don't say have major don't even problems. Worry don't even worry about it. We've been over this. <laughs> million Dollar Baby. Um, oh, I feel like we always get bogged down in like Million Dollar Baby conversations. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna say, um, but but she's great in this, and she's a good actress. I just I just have for some reason it's you always have one of those two actors. Like dad, my dad had a Vincent D'Onofrio problem forever. Well, he's I, actually Vincent D'Onofrio is not the person that was coming to mind, but he's a perfect example of there's actors that always. Always go for it. Even when they don't need to go for it, they go get it. And you're just kind of like, relax. But it's like, relax. But it, also, it also could be an instance of an actor who's solid and you know they're really good and you know they do it and they know they, they're putting in the work. But for some stupid reason, some stupid prejudice you have, you just don't like them. And that's Hillary Swank for me. That was Vincent D'Onofrio for my dad. I would not ever say, like, Hillary Swank should have won the Oscars for all these movies because my judgment is clouded. You know, like like I would just say, I just I see it. I just don't like her. I can fully admit that that's a prejudice. Um, but like all the performances in this are solid. The everything about this is it's beyond competent. It's really well done. It's it's it still has that lo-fi quality of of a director in his third film finding his voice that he gains by you know I'd say the yeah. prestige. Um, even though I love Batman Begins, the prestige is like kind of where he finds the Nolan kind of voice. Well, it's in, because the prestige is intimate and also really big simultaneously. It's like a big premise. Yeah, it's like an eighty million dollar feature, but it's like but Nolan it feels really find, like yeah. finally finding like the Nolan voice. But like you, so you have all this raw talent, and this is the film I can look at to say like it was a turning point for me where I could not understand everyone's love for this actor. Mm-hmm. I I I actually loved Hook as a kid. Yeah, Hook is alright. Phil Collins is in Hook, so I was I, pro Hook when I was a kid. I I I, and I hate to say this now. I hated Robin Williams in that movie with a passion. Did you like I, Phil Collins in that movie? And I rooted for Dustin Hoffman in that movie, <laughs> which is a, a terrible thing to say nowadays. Yeah, you don't want to root for Dustin. Hoffman. No, you don't want to root for Dustin Hoffman at all. But, but to be Dustin Hoffman's really good in Hook. I don't. I'm not a Dustin Hoffman guy. I've never. I'm been not a Dustin Hoffman, Hoffman guy. guy either. But I'm one of those guys who like rewatched. Like everyone says, rewatch Hook and it's a bad movie. And I was, I rewatched it and I was like, nope, still love, still like Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, still like Dustin Hoffman in this. But yeah. um, but like Robin Williams never did anything for me ever. I I didn't get his comedy. I didn't find him funny. I hate Mork and Mindy. I I just did not like anything he did. Mm-hmm. And those three movies together just showed me like this guy can fucking act. It's it's the the Sandler thing. You know, we saw the Sandler thing with. I mean, it's a, not to the, it's a little the different. lower, the much lower degree with Sandler. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting. It's just those those things where you, where a changing point in your opinion of an actor. Hmm. And Insomnia for me was that, um, the best example, I guess, of that. I I think. No, I saw I saw Insomnia first, and I saw One Hour Photo, and I was like, Insomnia kind of feels like a shot in the dark, and that the Smoochie still has a lot of those kind of like Robin Williams character tourisms and then one hour and then uh insomnia just locked down to me um that no this guy fucking knows what he's doing and this character 
he's created and like the, the kind of role he's playing is is something that is a, a choice not, mm. not not a choice but something that's a talent and um that's why it's my well there's a vo- there's a before. there's a real vulnerability that i think on not only someone like adam sandler or that adam sandler see you fucking did it <laughs> that someone like robert williams is going to bring to i him. mean we're going to we're going to do a deep dive in the murder mystery right i thought we were going to do a deep dive into the cobbler oh the same year that was made us but that the hell directed that but the guy did spotlight yeah tom <laughs> the, mccarthy the cob, tom yeah Cobbler and Spotlight in the same year, and he's like, "Do you think he sat there and went, Cobbler's my movie? That's gonna be my big break." I mean, if you asked him, he would say yes. If we invited him here, he sat in his chair and he drank an equal amount of half fulls. He'd be like, "The Cobbler, buddy." So, like, we're we're here to talk about your about your filmography. And he's like, sits up. He's like, "Okay, I'm ready to talk about Spotlight." And we're like, "What's that?" <laughs> we like, have lots of we're here to talk deep, about the Cobbler deep dive Cobbler questions ready for you. Yeah, we don't, sir. Yeah, who cares about? The Boston newspapers. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's there's always something about there's always something very trying really hard about Robin Williams, and this is a movie, and I feel like there's other movies on my list where I can, uh, I, or not on my list, but just in, in in the list of movies that I've seen where I've pointed to an actor and been like, oh, this is the one time where this actor's thing really helps him. So the idea that Robin Williams is trying to act a certain way in this movie really helps him because his character is trying to act a certain way. Yeah. His character is trying to be something very specific and failing and not failing and he thinks he's doing really good and you know uh, Al Pacino who obviously knows something but he still can he can break this guy down and Robin Williams can be broken down and still have the upper hand. That's a very Robin Williams thing and you saw you can see a lot of that in something stupid like patch adams or even like um you know what dreams may come um where he's trying to have this this he's trying to have this pathos and he's not really hitting the pathos it just doesn't work where in this he's trying to have this pathos he's trying to be this guy and it just makes perfect sense with the character he's playing you know, I mean, we're going to talk about another Robin Williams movie on on my list later, and uh, we're going to have a not dissimilar but dissimilar conversation about Robin Williams doesn't really factor into my feelings about that movie at all. Um, but this is I I saw this movie in theaters a couple of times. I think it's funny when um, I don't know how you were, but did you see movies a lot multiple times when you were like a teenager, like early twenties, because they were like the only movies that existed. Or was that just because, like... In no, I, I ran... I tried to run... I would run through movies, like, oh, on a rapid fire. See, because in 2002, I had seen everything at York Square. Um, I just went to see whatever was playing at the Orange movie theater. Um, so Orange... Was that where, the showcase? Where UI used to... Where UI is now, there used to be, like, a 16 or 12 screen huge movie theater. The big, like, UI, like, yeah. mega center? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Um, like, what year is... Like, 2002? Yeah, yeah, it was still there. So I saw like oh, wow. I saw like the fountain there. I saw there will be blood there, city of God, and these huge. So that was like two thousand six. So, but it was like an independent movie theater that had like a multiplex. It was a multiplex which played independent movies. What took it out of business? The uh, mall. Yeah, because they opened they opened that huge thing at the mall, and oh. also nobody went there because they saw I saw Pan's Labyrinth there by myself. In a in a multiplex theater. 
Oh, because by they myself. Played, they played a bunch of... Because they played independent area. movies. But I would just go see like something like Insomnia. We just went to see movies all the time. So we just saw Insomnia like two or three times with whoever of my group of friends hadn't seen that movie yet. It was like, all right, we're going to see Insomnia well, so again. During this time, I lived in a... Um, and this movie did decent. This was, this was a major release. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Um, but I lived in a small ranching town in northern Nevada called... Minden, Gardnerville, like dual cities. Oh, so yeah. those independent movies did not come to us. Um, around, moved up to Reno soon afterwards, and we had uh, the Riverside, the, uh, not Cinemark, what was it called back then? Oh, God. I can't remember what it was called. Well, there was show- I don't know what was on the West Coast, but there was show- Cinemark brought Showcase Rave. No, it wasn't that. It, um, was Cine- it was Showcase, and then it was Rave, and then it was Cinemark here. But we had a... It was close to Criterion, but it wasn't Criterion. Um, was it a Bowtie one? No, it wasn't a Bowtie. But uh, it was something that it was. It was a company that Cinemark bought out. Century, mm-hmm. Century Theaters. Nice. Um, we had Century Theaters in Reno that played independent movies. We got Pan's Labyrinth a month and a half after like started releasing, though. I'm sure like New Haven would have got it a month before we did. I'm imagining this like a Spirit of the Beehive scenario, when like everyone shows up at the Adobe Hut. Just to, <laughs> with yeah. their own chairs and just to see the movie. No, no, it was exactly like that. Also, there was a bunch of Italian fascists everywhere in Reno. It was really <laughs> weird. <laughs> oh, awesome. Very good. But you say you, you saw it repeatedly going yeah, back I mean, to the actual point of the story. It's one of those movies where, like, I, hadn't, I obviously haven't watched it in a while because it's not, like, a big... It's not like a big movie in my autobiography. But it's, it's a movie not, I remember like really big, liking. It's not a big movie in any autobiography. I mean, I even think like no there's got to be somewhere. Say. Maybe I mean, sure, someone. Yeah, like Maury, like Maura Tierney's or Catherine Isabel was like, this is the this is the movie. And I'm always happy to see Maura Tierney in movies, even when no, they another, just she's criminally another underused good, in another everything. Good, like solid character actress. Yeah, who's criminally underused. Catherine Isabel's also a really good. She's more like a scream queen now, but she's also another good like mm-hmm. actress who's really badly misused, even in like shitty budget horror movies. Hmm. Get it together, guys. That's the thing about Nolan too. I give Nolan credit for this, and that, like the the quick last Nolan conversation, that fucking guy knows how to cast. Like he, I it's I give credit probably to his casting director, um, and I don't know if he's had the casting. I'm not gonna look it up, but <laughs> he's created a team around him that knows how to cast people. Like oh, yeah. the fact that like Jack Gleason is in like the random little kid in Batman Begins mm-hmm. and grows up to be like, you know, one of the most hated villains on TV. Well, something like that says something. Like he, he, you know, Tom Hardy's semi well known, not really well known, but then like you know Nolan fucking launches him into the stratosphere, and the guy knows how to have a movie and surround it with actors who fucking are doing work. Yeah, I mean, it's, and work off so well with each other. Yeah, I mean, he's he's um, he makes us think Harry Styles could actually act, and who knows, Harry Styles maybe can act with the right cast. Well, he 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 kind of did. Yeah, I didn't think he was bad in Dunkirk. So. Yeah, no, I couldn't even know. I couldn't even point out for a while who Harry Styles was. I still don't know who Harry Styles is. I mean, I know who he is, but I don't. I, if you put fifteen guys in here right now and said like, which one's Harry Styles? He'd be like, I don't know. Would you point in one direction? Oh. 
so yeah, the, uh, just to sum up, it's it's a solid movie. Um, but sometimes like those movies that show up later on the list, and, and there's not a lot of brain movies left, or gut movies, I should say. They're, they're movies that that were on the front of my brain that I have to put them here. And because it was like a gut intuition feeling. It's like when you answer a trivia question and you're not sure if it's right. It's just like that, yeah. And you put it there and you're like, this feels right. And it, it turns out to be the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, weird. Weird comparison there, but whatever. Metaphor. Uh, but, you know, looking at this, like it was it was a turning point in, in a, a beloved kind of actor, a beloved kind of name, like kind of clicking with me. And, you know, sometimes, like, that happens, I guess. Uh, like, in Bruges, a movie we'll talk about at some point, um, was a clicking point for me with Colin Farrell. And then, since then, Colin Farrell's kind of just been... Uh, what else was he in? Before that, SWAT. I don't think you really Which, had to worry about SWAT. SWAT barely made, almost barely missed my list. Are you fucking... You're not serious, are you? Miami Heat? Or Miami Vice? <laughs> barely was, missed, missed That was... List. Miami Vice was... Post. Oh, Miami Vice is like in Bruges. Oh, Miami Vice is two thousand six, two thousand. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure Miami Vice I would is bet, after in Bruges. I would bet a billion dollars. A billion. I would bet a billion dollars right now. A billion doll hairs. Yeah. I, no, I will bet a billion doll hairs. At some by the end of the year, you have to present to me a billion doll hairs. Seems if, like too many doll hairs. If Miami Vice, so in Bruges comes out in two thousand eight, Miami Vice comes out in 2006, the year I said. Mm, that seems weird. It's post-collateral pre-embruge. Because people still thought Colin Farrell was shit. Like, people thought, people knew Jamie Foxx. But Fox. here's the thing. People thought Jamie Foxx was good at this point. Yeah. But people thought Colin Farrell was garbage. And they people... thought Jamie, and they thought, you know, Colin Farrell was bringing down Jamie Foxx. Little did they know. But people thought Colin Farrell was shit until he did, like, you know, the lobster. No. Like, nobody thought he was shit after in Bruges. Yeah, no, but, but people don't credit Colin Farrell with in Bruges' goodness. No, but they in know. In goodness is, I mean, is a reflection we cannot, of Brendan We cannot Gleason's. start talking about in Bruges right now. We're, we're going to talk about in Bruges again. Yeah, well, yeah, we will. So, but yeah, it was, it was one of those instances where you found out an act. For me... And some, so yeah, some SWAT was so SWAT Miami Vice solidified. You thought your impression of Colin Farrell, and then Bruce just blew it up, mm-hmm. just like the trio films of Insomnia, One Hour Photo, and Death of Smoochie blew up my opinion that Robin Williams was kind of this one note actor who didn't really have a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. It it wiped away Jack for me. I still, however, hold oh, m- many grudges against Francis Ford Coppola. For Jack. Yes. Yeah, Jack is kind of a bummer. <laughs> kind of a bummer <laughs> is the understatement of we the We should night. do a weird... We should do uh, an A block one day of Jack and North. I like, don't together. Mind. I actually don't mind North. Yeah, North is... <laughs> oh, wait, what's, what's, what's the one with uh, Ed O'Neill, too? That's, that, that other one? Dutch? Dutch. We'll do I fucking Dutch. love Dutch. We'll do Dutch. You know, no, Dutch I think, almost I think made Dutch, my list. I think Dutch and North are kind of like synonymous with me. Kind of movies that are kind of like not great, but like they're fine. But Dutch is great. North stinks. Well, I think Dutch but is du- Dutch is only great because of Ed O'Neill. Right, me. but North is 
bad for like all sorts of reasons, but also because it, it's like a perfect storm of bad. Well, because it's one of those movies that came out right around the time where like movies were all of a sudden costing like a ton of money, and they were just like, oh, every oh, right, actor and their North, mother is in this movie. Because North was really expensive, right? Right. Every actor and their mother is in this movie. This movie stinks. Well, typing, so it must be the, the word worst North movie gives ever. you a direction, not the movie. Ouch, North. Was North a uh, Rob North? Reiner? Oh, Rob Reiner. How much did North cost? North cost $40 million? How much did John Lovitz make off that movie? <laughs> John Lovitz and Graham Greene just had like it's enough to retire. 80, 80 feet yeah. trailers. There you go. Good. Good for John Lovitz. Yeah. You know what? After punching out Andy Dick, he deserves it. Everyone deserves everything they get if they punch out Andy Dick. Exactly. Miracles we do will. happen. <laughs> oh, I was about to say something I couldn't say. I was like, we're going to send you a beer if you punch out Andy Dick. But I think that might be it. We will not do that. He don't might punch, come here. Don't punch Wait, Andy Dick. Dead? He's yeah. Don't punch Andy Dick. We'll not give you anything. <laughs> Listeners, do not punch Andy Dick. <laughs> the entertainment industry is different now. Alan Arkin's in the North. God. Everybody's in North. Oh, Really? Everybody? Is Abe Vigoda in North? He might be. Abe Vigoda's in North. <laughs> we'll be right back with Tom's number 64. Uh, let's pop this open really quick, though. I don't know the sound of the beer. So what are we doing? This is Pursuit. It's Pursuit. This is their IPA. Uh, I had one of these earlier. It's 7%. It's in Pursuit of Passion. Um... I mean, there's passion fruit. Our pursuit just, is nonstop yeah, adventure. The perfect inspirational pairing for and whenever you find yourself in pursuit of passion. Um, I had one earlier. It's a pretty standard IPA, but it doesn't taste like seven percent, which is lingering on a double. So I give him that. We did not dink it. Hmm. Man, if we ever if we ever gain popularity, I really hope the good mythical people don't sue us. Who's that? Oh yeah, yeah you told me about that. Yeah. I think Sink It is, is on their advertisement, not Dink It. Fuck them. I like Good Mythical. They'd probably let us on their fucking show if we got ever famous. Um, this is fine. It's got a weird citrus note to it. Which I think is fine. Mm. I think it's fine. It's a good fine beer. Sorry not selling your beers half Grapefruity? Grapefruit? Yeah, no. That's little a, bit, like a little hint of the grapefruit, grapefruit there. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's a fine it's, IPA. But it's dry, which I don't love... I say I like dry IPAs. I like them when I think when they're a dry IPA. When you but know, you isn't... know the beer I, I thought about getting us this week, but then I, I thought the gimmick was perfect was a Mango Sorbet IPA from Banded Brewery, which is tastes like a Mango Sorbet. It's really solid. Next, ah, there is always next week, Mario. There is. There is always next week. So, but I keep trying to theme our beers. I think we're now doing a good job of theming our beers. Or, yes, do mangoes match up with any of our, our episodes next week? Maybe I'll look, I'll look around to see if uh, any of the beers, if when mango, week 58, 58, I'll do the mango IPA. Yeah, there you go. It matches slightly. For next if, week. If you get the idea. Do any. With your 58, do you get how mango could match? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wink, yeah. Wink, Well, there's a, there's a beer downstairs that would match perfectly. Um, do any of the beers for next week taste like blood? We should get a beer that tastes like blood. 
Or the week after. <laughs> Either of the next two weeks, a beer that tastes like blood would be perfect. Kind of boring. So, uh, let's do my number 64. Which is 2006's Miami Vice, right? Yep. No, it's 2011's Miami Vice. It's the Miami Vice that came out after Imbruge. That's my that's the that's the version. I guess of I owe you a billion dollars now. <laughs> I'm doing. Um, my number sixty four is Jesus's son. Are you hearing any unusual sounds or voices? <laughs> Not exactly. Pretend it's the first time. Would you, do you think you'd like to dance? Um, usually I just watch. Uh, yeah. But okay. Really? There are some people out there who would like to know a thing or two about you. I've been shot twice. Twice? Yeah, but once by each wife. All these weirdos. Getting a little better every day, right in the middle of them. Uh, it is directed by Allison McLean. It came out in 1999. It uh, features a score, soundtrack, whatever, by Joe Henry. Um, the cinematography is by Adam Kimmel, who would go on to work with Bennett Miller a bunch. He did Capote. He had never let me go. Um, he also did a bunch of Ted Demi movies um, in the 90s. Uh, including The Ref, which is a movie that I love. And Alison McLean did not really do a lot. She has not directed a lot of movies. I was looking at, trying to look at her. She directed a really solid episode of Carnival. Um, that's about it. She didn't direct a, a really... She did direct Dance Fever from Adventures of Pete and Pete. I love Adventures of Pete and Pete. Pete and Pete they were great. just here. Arnie, strongest man in the, in the world. world. They were just at the, the ballroom. The Pete and Pete guys. Danny... Yeah, and the other guy. Enlarged man. Um, it was written by Elizabeth... Have you seen Dan- Danny Tamarelli lately? Yeah, yeah, he's a big guy. He's a big guy. Yeah. For you. But they were at the ballroom. And Michael oh, Michael C. Marooney, right? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Not a big guy. Written by Elizabeth Cuthrell, David Urtuia, and uh, Urutuia, and Urutia, and Oren Moverman, who would go on to direct... And write a bunch of really interesting movies in the 2000s, like The Messenger. Um, Woody Harrelson's movie. I love it. It's a good movie. movie. Yeah. Um, not, he did, uh, did he do I'm Not There? Was that, he wrote it, right? What? One second. Yeah, he wrote I'm Not There. With Todd Haynes. Haynes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, oh, the Dylan movie. Yeah, which is fine. It is almost on my list. Oh. It was almost on I was my trying to undersell it. I actually like that movie. It was actually I like that movie and I was trying to undersell it cuz I thought you would hate it. It was almost on my list. I don't love it. But it was I a, love it either, but it was I like a it. big fucking deal. When I when it came out, my disappointment and lack of understanding of what I'm not there was supposed to do or be doing was very significant to me at the time. And I've gotten over it since then. Um, especially after listening to Todd Haynes talk about it on a number of interviews in depth. About what the hell oh, he was also, trying to do. He also wrote Love and Mercy, which I really liked too. Love and Mercy was a good movie. John Cusack's John last should, real good movie. John Cusack actually got nominated for that movie, in my opinion. Well, I don't know about that. That's a bad year. 2014? It's a bad year. For, for actor? Best actor or supporting actor? Uh, supporting. Yeah. All right. Um, we're not so going to have that conversation. We're not going to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
it's adapted from, uh, you know, adapted is kind of a loose term. It's, you know, there's a lot of Inspired, dialogue, a lot yeah. of things taken from Dennis Johnson's collected of stories called Jesus' Son. Um, came out in 92. Uh, um, the book, though. Billy Crudup plays uh, the unnamed character that we know affectionately as Fuckhead. So FH, as far as Wikipedia and IMDb is concerned. Um, the difference, I guess, between the book and the movie is that Michelle, played by Samantha Morton, the most beautiful girl he's ever seen, is um, his one real love interest in the movie. Where in the book, there's a couple of people that kind of he kind of cycles um, through. And I've I've um, never read this book. I I we're gonna get yeah. It's hate Dennis Johnson's writing. Oh yeah, I go in and I go in and out of Dennis Johnson. I don't love Dennis Johnson. I love Jesus' Son. Uh, we're gonna get to that in a second. Um, I mean, I've just never got to it. He just goes, you know, FH, as we'll call him, just has a series of misadventures with a bunch of misbegotten, you know, outcast, marginalized individuals in Iowa, in the Pacific Northwest, in Crudup, Arizona. Crudup, as we know, really cruds it up. And end of podcast. <laughs> Um, I don't know what to do, Mario, because you you punned myself out of my monologue. You just punned me right out of here. Um, so there's not like a uh, there's a there's a more traditional narrative in the movie than there is in the books. In the books, the time skips around, the location skips around. He's not always very clear about where he is or where he's going or who he was with or. If this even relates to something that you just read, uh, where we are in the timeline, the movie kind of streamlines that. So it's it starts in one place, it goes backwards, and then it goes forwards again. Um, this movie is I, this is not a movie I saw in theaters. So 1999 was a you know it was a big pivotal year for movies for me, um, kind of for you I guess too. Um, I interestingly just started reading this book by Brian Raftery that just came out called Best Movie Year Ever about, like, the films of 1999. So, like, you know, The uh, Election, The Matrix, Galaxy Quest, Phantom Menace, all these other other movies. This movie, Jesus' Son, is mentioned. Alison McLean is quoted as talking about the movies of 1999 in the introduction. And that's the end of mentions of Jesus' son. I'm going to be honest. I had not heard about this movie until last June. Awesome. Do you know why? Because you gave me the list. There you go. And this like, is what the fuck is this? I so this is an interesting. It's an interesting movie because I came to this movie because I used where I used to live in Woodmont in Milford. There used to be a video rental store there, and they had a poster for Jesus' son in the window forever. Like forever, um, for years it almost seemed like. like the people that worked there just loved Jesus the Son. I could be totally wrong about how long this poster of Jesus the Son was up there. It could have just been the appropriate amount of time, you know, designated by the owner. Blah 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 blah. blah. Um, but I was like, I had seen Almost Famous, and I was in a Billy Crudup mood. And we're going to talk about Almost Famous later for people that are keeping track of this stuff. Um, oh, we we are. I did. I completely forgot that was on. That's on your list. Yeah. <laughs> Mario's I'm life just got worse. Busy. I'm busy that week. <laughs> um. I watched the movie, and I said, "Huh, 
And then I read Dennis Johnson's book about, you know, being high and poor in, you know, the rural parts of America in the 70s, in the early 70s. And I said, huh. And at the time, it's like I just would, I just turned 21. Um, you know, I was playing bands. I was working in a record store and then a bookstore. Um, I was doing all the things that a 21-year-old is supposed to be doing. And I really thought that FH's life was a good life. And I said, I'll just do that forever. This is a Velvet Underground? Yeah, I, like, I do like the Velvet Underground. Um, I, I do like me some Lou Reed. Um, but coupled with reading like... Wait, hold on a second. Lou Reed's a part of Velvet Underground? We're not doing this. I'm talking. <laughs> I never, I never actually. Is that, that true? You didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah, he reads in the Velvet Underground. You I don't, look, I don't know anything about music. Look that up when we're talking. Um, coupled with reading on the road. Holy shit! And coupled with reading Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool Aid Acid oh, I Test. I Lou Reed died too. Good, sir. Lou Reed's not dead. Neither is David Bowie. They're also alive somewhere. Um, Jim Morrison's dead though. Good, thank God. Um, <laughs> coupled with with on the road and reading the electric Kool Aid acid test, I thought this was the best. Where, where who's that by? Tom Wolfe. Okay, I thought this was the best life a person could lead. I didn't really want to do heroin, but I just assumed that through drinking, I could achieve all of the magnificent things that happen to Billy Crudup in this movie, or to you know Sal Paradise, or to you know, Ken Kesey and Neil Cassady and all the other merry pranksters in the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. Um, I you did, thought you didn't realize you didn't realize that heroin was an upper and that alcohol was a depressant at the point. Uh, no, no, I always knew that alcohol was a depressant because drinking really made me want to go to sleep. <laughs> Doing that. every drug makes me want to go to sleep. Um, I, I just assumed this was it. This was the best, and I could write an awesome book like. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I can write an awesome book like On the Road, and I could do awesome things like shave Dennis Hopper's face and talk into his bullet hole and, you know, all these awesome things. I could do – I this was it. This was the life for me. It was a short-lived thing. Um, because you were – Because I was 20, 21, 22. Okay. But that Dennis Johnson book is my original copy that I had back then – um, it's like a little bigger than a standard mass market paperback, but it's only 160 pages. It fits right in the back pocket of a pair of jeans, Mario, and it came with me to lots of things. And I wish I brought it here. I'd take a picture and put it on Twitter. Maybe I'll take a picture at home and I'll put it on Twitter. Um, we need more Twitter things for sure. It's one of those things where I have encountered various Dennis Johnson, Dennis Johnson stories from Jesus' Son in, um, like I took a short story class in at UConn when I was getting my degree, and the teacher was like obsessed with Dennis Johnson. I don't know what her, she had a like a relationship to him. He was a mentor, blah, blah, blah. Um, we spent like a week on work. The Dennis Leary story in this, in the movie. Um, that, that Wayne story. Yeah. The Wayne story. Yeah. Oh, and that's, so that's, so we spent like a week on it and every so often, every few years or something, I come back all- to an image, like something or a tone or a feeling from this movie. Um, 
and rarely has, does it have anything to do with Billy Crudup, but like Michael Shannon's character, Dun Dun, Wayne, um, you know, even Samantha Morton as Michelle, like this kind of like weird freedom, but that people aren't, these people aren't really free of anything. It's a, it's a misrepresentation of what it means to be free. These people are like prisoners of, of, you know, their own inability to kind of grapple with the things that really matter in life. See, my, yeah, and my taking this movie, having seen it for the first time this week, was just a lot of, it's pathetic. And it's presented. Sure, yeah, it's presented. Oh, yeah. And what's nice about this is it's not presented as not pathetic. It's, mm-hmm. they're, re- they're really pathetic in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, even the people, the people who are not pathetic, the people who are kind of like outside of that and are actually real people are actually in the same, like, uh, that entire hospital scene with Greg Gurman. Mm. Like, Greg Gurman's kind of, typically kind of like a pathetic actor. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I say this loving Greg Gurman. Like, when I see him, I, I'm really happy to see Greg Gurman because uh-huh. he's a really solid comedic he's actor. He's a regular on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. Um, <laughs> Tom pointed at himself with a look of disdain and sadness. But, like, he's presented as kind of like this, like, dorky, nonsense goofball in this. But he's, he's like a real person. And like you find yourself going like, oh, this is a this is a real guy, and it's 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 a kind of and I don't know what Greg Gurman had done at that time, like if he was really had done anything. I don't know if he was like in some comedy show. This of movie that has age. a lot of people in it, so I mean, yeah. I imagine that he was probably in something, and they grabbed him like, because he, had he was to be, available. I want to. I mean, yeah, no, Alan McBeal. He was Alan. He was. Oh yeah, Alan yeah, McBeal. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, I was Alan thinking. McBeal. I was Jesus thinking news radio. Christ. But so he was already he's kind of this goofy comedy actor already. But he's a real person. You know, he's like the one person who's like, what the fuck is going on and why are people acting like this? And that's interesting to me. Um, in the sense that this movie does lean into how pathetic it all is. Like well, everyone. It's it maintains some of the so you we were kinda of talking off air about the fact that like, you know, you don't love Billy Crudup in this movie. I I, I don't really I love, don't love Billy Crudup. I mean, we could talk about this a little bit later. I don't like Billy Crudup. Billy Crudup. And I don't know why. I I am kind like, of indifferent to Billy Crudup in the sense that sometimes I like him and sometimes I don't really Billy like Crudup him. Billy Crudup might be a, like a Robin Williams for me. So one day there's going to be a Billy Crudup movie that comes out and you're going to be like, that's it. No, I like him in one movie. And I hate that movie, but I like him in one movie. Which is? Watchmen. I hate Watchmen, but I oh, like yeah. him in Watchmen. Because he's so blue? No, just because like, he's the only person who's a... Good actor besides you know Jack. Early, I was gonna say besides like obviously Jack Earl Haley did that movie because like he was needing to make a name for himself. But that movie sucks and has so many bad actors in it. Malin Ackerman, Patrick Wilson, and Malin Ackerman having sex in that owl ship uh, to Leonard Cohen's original version. Let's of just say this right now. I mean, really quickly, we, we, we can all very easily agree <laughs> that. That uh, Zack Snyder's awful. Um, Let's just have a like a, a side conversation. No, no, I don't, I don't want to have a conversation. He's just bad, <laughs> and and that's the one time I liked him. But like, like having like all the stuff, I, I hate him in Mission Impossible Three, which is still my favorite Mission Impossible movie. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't, I fucking hate him in Almost Famous. I despise him in Vending the Abbots and Waking the Dead, two movies I hate just because he's in them. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know what it is about Billy Crudup, but I just don't like Billy Crudup, mm. and it continues in this movie. Well, this movie's weird, but it works because he's pathetic and right. 
it, it, it works in this. I'm going to give him. I'm going to give Billy Crudup. Sorry, a Billy Crudup. I'm sure you're a great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's probably he is a super good guy. It's, it's one of those. It's one of those like he's actually a good act. He's once again a good act. I, I think he's actually a good actor, but I have a prejudice against him. I just don't like. I him. think he gets stuck sometimes with roles where he has to make a lot of choices. This is a tough one because the book is very funny, and he is like you said, he is super pathetic. And his life sucks 100% of his own making. While also being due to a lot of circumstances that we just really don't get to see. Or we don't get to experience. Or not really part of the story. And that's one of the things that I kind of like about... I've always liked about the book and I like about the movie. Is that it doesn't try to like... Draw him out from a history perspective. It's just like, well, this is this guy. And... The narration and the voiceover stuff is obviously coming from a future time, and it's really just him trying to kind of beat his own life into a kind of shape. You know what I mean? Like him thinking about his past, trying to trying to draw a timeline out of it himself, not saying like, let's go back and talk about when I was a baby and like my parents and how I got to here. It's just, let's assume I started here when I met Michelle my life was one thing. I met Michelle. My life turned into a different thing. How did I end up at this hospital, like, you know, writing this newsletter and touching patients and, like, all this other stuff? And I, and I think this movie's hard for him, too. And I, I actually really respect what he did here. I mean, he bugs me still. But I respect the fact that, like, there has to be an inherent growth in, in FH's character. There has to be some sort of arc to it. Yeah. And, and there is in the book, too. Yeah. Um, like, like not, a, I don't know necessarily like a redemptive arc or whatnot, but there has to be some, something there. And he's, you know, conflated with all these actors who are able to really le- heavily lean into kind of caricature. Mm. Like, you know, Dennis Hopper's Bill or... Who is Holly, good. I mean, he's yeah, good. Great, yeah, yeah. Or Holly Hunter's Mirror, who I really, I usually don't like Holly Hunter, but like in that role, I like her a lot. Or, you know, uh, uh Dun, not Dun Dun or Dun Dun Dun. Like, fucking... Shannon, Whew. just doing Shannon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Or even like, um, like, you know, uh, our guy, I'm not a big fan of him. It's just making me sound like an asshole. But like, um, Georgie, like Jack Black's Georgie. Like, it's Jack Black doing Jack Black, but like, a little more like, reserved. But it kind of, and it, it's weird that Jack Black is a kind of moral superior. No, I know. Especially to... like the bunny, the bunny yeah. scene. Yeah, which is, I mean, which is an incredible, which is an incredible scene in which... Jack Black I mean, almost sells better than Billy Crudup, but but Billy I Crudup like can't, doesn't have to sell that because Billy Crudup's fucked up. Well, but that's the thing, and I think the thing I'll give Billy Crudup a lot of credit for, and I think you probably agree, is that he Billy Crudup's really credited up at that point. He's got so much to do, and he has so many choices to make. Of how does he play this? Is it for? Is it for? It's a movie. It's not real life. What would he do in real life? He'd probably be totally fucked up he'd probably not be making any sense but in the movie he's got to play it for like a little bit for laughs and also simultaneously like my life is just a fucking shit show this movie's like just bathos after bathos which is I found interesting Mm -hmm. just like just this constant anticlimax and just like this kind of like ridiculousness everything goes wrong yeah like everything's building and it just kind of like blows apart and it's it's weird because that's not fun to watch. Oh, it's well. That's the thing. So here's and that's and this a really not good fun not to fun. watch, and it's a really good point because it has so many good parts. But I'm so unhappy. So and watching this movie, Samantha Morton, who we're going to talk about, we're going to do a bonus Morvan Caller episode. We just have to do a bonus Morvan Caller episode. We have to. 
Samantha Morton in this movie is... Is Lynn Ramsey making another movie this year? Because she should. Oh, she probably so. will. Yeah, she's not. She's but. not. She's probably not going to make another movie for five years. We're not going to have a podcast. Then. But we'll, re, we'll reintroduce the well, podcast and talk about, about it. We'll have a podcast. Um, <laughs> our vodka history podcast. Um, well, no, we'll be, we'll be on to the third thing by then. She is a fucking bolt of lightning in this movie. And then she very casually dies. And he drags. I don't know if I'd call that casually. He, but I mean, just, her death is casual. But, he, but her, that's, but her that's post. What, no, no, but her post mortem is is less than but that's casual. What I'm saying is that he. Her post mortem is a, uh, is a you know, whose line is it anyway? Style of comedy of He error. comes into the room drunk, or high, or whatever. He kisses her on the face. We just have to assume, based on the fact that he's having this conversation with us. That something is not good with her. But he goes to sleep next to her. He wakes up. He kisses her. Her arm is falling off the bed. It's only then that he finds the note that she purposely OD'd. If he wants to save her, if he loves her, he's going to save her like she saved him when he OD'd after hanging out with Dennis Leary's Wayne. Yeah. Which is a beautiful scene. Um, it's got that split screen in there. It's nice. It's beautiful. And he doesn't. And... He drags her dead body into a shower. And then we assume he drags her dead body out because she's laying there naked on the bed. And he eats the note that she left. Um, And then Miranda July tries to kill him. But that's a different different part of the conversation. That shit is fucking tough. But it's got this really weird sense of... Lightness to it? humor to it you know what i mean like it's supposed to be kind of funny while also being disgusting i don't i don't necessarily know if it's supposed to be funny um but it is kind of funny no because i think it, it ties into what mira says later in the sense of like you know doesn't it make you grateful like where she's talking about all of her dead husbands or what Dennis Hopper says, he's like, talking to my bullet hole and tell me I'm doing all right. Yeah, no, but no, what she says, like, doesn't it make you grateful because they were. They were people just like us, only unluckier. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the kind of thing of, like, he's still, I, mean, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily funny, but it's still like a fucking, her story's over. His story could still have something to it. Well, I think we just assume it's when we're like, watching it, it's he's going to die. Like, you just assume the way this is going that, like, this is not going to end well for him. And even at the end of the movie where it, like, ends on a kind of uplifting note, I feel like you have to assume that this is not going to go well. Like, whatever happens the next day is going to be an equal, you know, he's peeping on this uh, on this Mennonite family because he's just, he just loves seeing these collected people together. Um, you know, these people that know what they're about and what they believe in. And, you know, it's not... It's not typical, but it's but it's real. Regardless, he's we've never seen him in a position, and that's why I think the book. Oh, really? Of, I think I think he I think he's going to redeem himself. Well, I I think he probably does, and I think he probably has, I suppose. Um, but I suppose you never know. It's so early. It's not like time. A lot of time has passed. You know what I mean? If like the movie starts in seventy one, we're maybe at what seventy two. Yeah. Like, and what happens for the rest of the set? Like, you don't know. We don't know. We don't know anything about it. And it's stupid for us to assume. And I'm, I, I, it sounds like I'm yelling at you, but I'm really not. I'm just kind of like yelling at, like, 
like no. the narrative gods. Guys, I, I don't know if, yeah, if you could see, if we YouTube this, I'm in a fetal position in the corner. <laughs> but he dragged the microphone with him, so yeah. everything's clear when he's talking. Oh, yeah, I care about audio levels. <laughs> Even when he's being publicly shamed on, on the podcast. Um, I am seriously you know, your walk of shame. There's a thing we don't know. Like, the 70s were terrible. Like, for a lot of people in a lot of places. There was a lot of Nixon and Ford. Yeah. And Carter. And he was in places that were not really thriving at the time. So who knows what, like, where he ended up. But, and I think that points to, like, the crewed up problem is that, like, he knows, like, the narrate in the narration, he knows something. He knows where he is in the narration, which has this You're kind saying of... You're saying up does, are you saying... The character, character. does. Okay. So there's a bounce to it, because he knows that he comes out of this, because he's narrating it from where he is, like, where we, where we where leave we him... Where we meet him, yeah. Yeah, where we leave him in the movie is where we meet him in the beginning of the movie. Um, but that's the end of the movie, and we have no idea what happens to... Like, he's... He's trying to make sense, it seems like, a little bit of how he got to where he is. But we have no sense of where he's, where he's going, really. You know what I mean? We can assume that things are going to go well, but we also know that... And I'm attributing that this, things haven't gone well in the past. Things haven't gone well in the past, and also this is America. You know what I mean? This is America in, in the very early 70s, and things are only going to get shittier in America in the very early 70s. You know what I mean? It's not like things get way better from 71 to 73. They just get worse. I mean, the gas crisis was fine, man. Yeah. It's a good... I mean, it's the best kind of crisis to have. We I had guess. two of them. It was great. <laughs> Both of them didn't need to happen. But it's an interesting... It's an interesting... But I, I do want to talk about this. Like, yeah. the bounciness... I, I don't want to keep having the crud-up conversation. But the bounciness is interesting. And my problem with this movie... And maybe it's good casting because, like, there, there's a bounce. There's supposed to be a bounciness to this character, but don't you always get a sense with Crudup that there's like too much of like a, a boyishness to it? Well, so this is what I would say, and this is one of the things that, and even like his like character, like it, my problem is his character. He's like, not going back to, to be Michigan. very. He's not supposed to be very old. They're only supposed to be in their, like all of these people are always early supposed to be in their early twenties, mid twenties, yeah, yeah. But like even like this man, like Billy Crudup for me has always kind of been boyish. Yeah, like even now, still he's still kind of boy- like even in Mission Impossible Three, like looking at and I keep going back to Mission Impossible Three, maybe because I'm just bummed even in, out. Even in Spotlight, <laughs> yeah, but maybe I'm just bummed out that Philip Seymour Hoffman was just given like the the floor to himself. But like, there's always like a boyishness to it, and like this is he's supposed to be boyish, but there's like a charm. There's like an attempt at like a charm in this movie that's kind of like prevalent through all those films that I found weird. Oh, yeah. Um. I found that point so boring, Mario. No, it's I... because it's very late. Um, I want to say very. It is... So early in the movie, when they get into the car crash, mm. and, you know, he says he can sense it the whole time, and he sees, you know, the wife after... Finding out that her husband's dead, you know, was just wailing in the hospital, and he, you know, says she sound what she sound like an eagle or something, and he says that like I've been looking for, been looking for something like that, like the sound of that, like ever since, and he is 
I think one of the reasons I was kind of drawn to the character and drawn to the book and drawn to the ideas in the book is that at base, he is a person who hasn't had to grow up yet. And what is really important to him is finding these like little miracles all over the place and kind of just reveling in, I don't want to say the beauty of them because that sounds very American beauty and that sounds dumb, but just the joy of being alive from one moment to the next and what that means. So it means you get to hear these crazy sounds. It means you get to hear these crazy, like do these crazy things, hear these crazy stories, meet these crazy people. Um, there's at a certain point in the movie, there's no consequences. Like he doesn't think that there are any consequences. So the he doesn't know works, that there's any. So it's saying. just, he's just drinking everything in. So when everyone's like, you know, everything you touch turns to shit, it's because he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that that's the case yet or that, that everything he touches turns to shit matters at all. And even like, cause the, he could just move on from yeah, whatever he was like doing. Even like the hospital scene where like, you know, uh, Greg German is like, get this and this and this because I can't handle it. And like the, his reaction kind of fits, you know, like well, he's like, oh, the eye guy's out. But like all the other people are yeah, yeah. on their way. Well, just I mean, I, one of the, the most my favorite scene in the movie and also I think I think my favorite scene in the book is when he comes across the drive in movie theater that he thinks is a cemetery. The, the cemetery. Driving and that's like the picture he's seeing in the drive in movie theater is, you know, an angel or something talking to him and that's that's what it says in the book and it's kind of what we perceive in the in the in the movie um and that's i mean to a point i mean i'm 37 fucking years old and that's still me like a little bit where i you know you see this thing and you just want it to be you want it to be a, an an unknown forgotten hidden cemetery you know what i mean with a fucking angel that's just hovering over everything that wants to talk to you. Um, and for a long time, that's who this guy is. And because nothing really matters to him. And then, you know, things have to matter. Yeah. Things get too crazy. But I guess, I guess it works in the narrative there. I guess this is a good use of, of credit. But I'm kind of... It's sad that... I mean, I think it's solid direction. I, I don't think... And said that she, Allison McLean hasn't done anything since then. Mm. Um, I was all the performances and everything kind of like works really well together. Yeah, it's a it's a very um, it's, it's a really congealed film. Like it, it 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 blends well. Yeah, the look is good. The locations are good. I mean, everything's kind of. And you know what else is good? And I I really want to. Yeah, I want to finish on this. So Stephen King was an author of a lot of works. Sometimes a director. Stephen King? Is he, what? Is he? He's a guy. A director sometimes of, uh, of Maximum Overdrive, but he shows up a lot, of in, <laughs> a lot of times in his films. And he stinks as an actor. Yeah, he's terrible. Dennis Johnson is really good in this movie. And I'm sad we didn't get more Dennis Johnson perform. Like, yeah. There, there's, he's got a good look to him. And just like his like, do you want to file charges? Only if I die. But like, like he's that could be like, something. I, so I'm... my only my only exposure, my only major exposure to Dennis Johnson was Emergency and a couple of like short stories. Uh-huh. But like he carried the tone of a character of his. 
Yeah. And like Stephen King or other like writer turned actor like Neil actors, Young can't do that. But like I'm I'm kind of sad I didn't see more Dennis Johnson. That's something Dennis I could be ready like, for right now, right about now. But just like he's he's good in this, right? Yeah, and he's and I I think emergency. And he has a decent size. He's not even like one line. He has like ten, fifteen. Emergency lines is I think the toughest from the context of the movie. Like looking backwards in the sense that like they cast it with Jack Black and you know what have you. Um, emergency is the toughest sell because it's the most slapsticky. Yeah, but it all kind of works. It all inexplicably works, even though Jack Black does Jack Black things, and I just want to slap the fucking shit out of him and say stop doing that stupid dance that you do like you do that in every movie he's gonna do that a year later in high fidelity you know bugs stop me, doing you know it. bugs me about the dance too is jack black at this point isn't even fat enough to do jack black's dance he's doing like a chris farley dance and it's like jack black you're not chris farley's size yeah, he's gonna perfect the dance in school of rock a few years later is he, get, is he about that size at that point he's a little bigger in school yeah, of rock i think yeah. Or maybe he's the, uh, roughly the same size because he got bigger and then he got smaller because he was in School of Rock and then he got bigger again. But it doesn't matter because I love Jack Black and we're going to talk about Jack found, Black. He found the Hangman Page style of getting big and <laughs> getting getting bigger and smaller. We're going to talk about Jack Black again. That's a, that's later a new Japan pro wrestling in quote the, for you people in our, on our list. So yeah, no, I'm just surprised by like how good De- <laughs> how good Johnson, he is yeah. how good he is in that. Like it was like having read Emergency, it was like. The character coming to life. Mm-hmm. I'm sad that like, not a Dennis Johnson fan, but I'm sad reading get more Dennis Johnson being Dennis Johnson characters. Well, it's funny because I've read I read this book three times in the last two weeks. Jesus is son, just leading up to because I love it. I've owned it for a long time. Thank you for I telling just, me. Thank you for telling me a book we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I took out a bunch of other Dennis Johnson books from the library, thinking like, yeah, I'll just you know, and I'm I'm working on my MFA now. It's like, oh, Dennis Johnson, I'll make him an influence. Blah blah blah. I really don't like any other Dennis Johnson books except for this one, and I've tried almost all of them. You know what my problem with Dennis Johnson is? Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to speak. As a person who tried to become a writer for a while and realized I just don't have the energy for it, Dennis Johnson always reminded me of somebody who's, like, tapping on... Like, he has, like, a lot of similar styles to, like, Tim O'Brien. Hmm. But yeah. like, he doesn't hit Tim O'Brien's like levels of just like burying himself into it. There's kind of like no. Well, Tim O'Brien's like a, a lot more back. visceral than Dennis Johnson. Is. But Dennis, Dennis Johnson, Johnson is like has, a writer. Yeah, but Dennis Johnson always has kind of like a like a I don't know. There's like a, a wall with Dennis Johnson. I think Dennis Johnson's a good writer, yeah, like yeah, a yeah. really solid writer. But it always feels like I'm reading someone who's just kind of like writing to like write. Well, it's funny because and versus yes. Tim O'Brien like writing to like fucking exercise. Yes, I mean I, that is actually a pivotal fairly. Books. Good analysis. I, and I agree with you 100%. Um, my favorite Dennis Johnson books are obviously Jesus' Son, and then he has a short book in, that he published in the 2000s called Train Dreams. Did he have, did he have a, like a heroin issue when he was younger? I have no I, idea. I, I mean, because I know he had, he had alcohol issues. But, they all but, had alcohol issues. I think he's another Iowa Writers Workshop guy, and they all had alcohol issues. Someone should <laughs> close that program down because it just <laughs> produces drugs. Yeah, Jordan. <laughs> um, but it'd be great if there was like a famous writer who's just like, yeah, no, I don't. I, I guess I eat some too many skittles sometimes. I eat a lot of, <laughs> yeah. I have a real skittles problem. I eat a lot of nuts. Maybe too many nuts. I eat a lot of nuts. 
I should probably cut back on this. Yeah, but uh, no, no. So, so the thing that's interesting is just like he's a, he was a solid writer, but like he didn't have like an authenticity to it. But then like seeing him in this kind of like made respect it a little more. I just just because like he like he he lived in that character, so it's like oh maybe he was being yeah it's maybe funny. authentic to himself. I think there is. Authenticity is a weird word because I think he is being. I just use the word authentic a lot because I think he I'm is being authentic, but I, I think it's it's just it's a strange. I don't know. His writing style lends itself to these short kind of bursts, and when he tries to expand it beyond that, it just kind of. It seems really like lugubrious, more lugubrious burst, than it really needs to be. But the bursts are so like. Well, self-contained well, like, and did, so like right. thought out. Well, that's what I mean. So like, Tree of Smoke, I guess, is a good book, and I really liked Will Patton's audiobook version of Tree of Smoke. But I couldn't read Tree of Smoke because it just went on and on and on. I got to get Will Patton in this too. Ooh, I love Will Patton. I love me yeah. some Will Patton. If you want to tell us other things that you like Will Patton in, you such can... as the great movie The Lone Ranger. Was he in Lone Ranger, actually? Also, no, he wasn't in Lone Ranger. Yeah, of course. I, I'm Such as fun. Remember the Titans. Oh, he wasn't in Lone Ranger. He was the only... Oh, he's one of those men who wasn't... Oh, God, I thought he was in Lone Ranger. You're thinking of Army Hammer. I often confuse Will Patton and Army no, Hammer. No, I'm trying to think. You should continue on with your story. Because <laughs> I really thought Will Patton was in Lone Ranger. If you... He was in Hall- the Halloween sequel, though. Yeah, oh, yeah. He was in... Which one? The, the H- newest one. The. Um... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's, like, one of the best parts of that movie. I love, Will Patton's great. Yeah, Will Patton, Barry Pepper, another good one. I don't know if Barry Pepper's a good one. Barry Pepper is is a guy who was in a John Travolta directed Scientology. I accidentally movie. got I accidentally got my uh, Will Patton and William Fitcher mixed up That's, for a second there. It happens. I it think happens. That happens. Yeah. Are they both in Armageddon? Yeah, they're both in Armageddon. There you go. That's why. That's why it happens. Yeah. Our the, one of the earliest Criterion films. There, yep, there you go. Um, Barry Pepper is not in Armageddon, though. No, which is too bad. Um, he is in Battlefield Earth, though, so that's positive. <laughs> Just like Forrest Whitaker, who is also oh not in Armageddon. Oh my god, Barry Pepper's not even 50. Good for you, Barry Pepper. Where has Barry Pepper been? Cryogenic <laughs> freezing? <laughs> yeah. Did he go back so. in time? We are going to be talking about Barry Pepper in about... Ten weeks. Nice. We're gonna see a, I'm excited. We're gonna see in theaters a movie of his. If you also want to tell us how excited you are for a new Barry Pepper movie, you can Which email is us Crawl at, by Alexander Asia. You can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us if you're Barry Pepper. If you know Twitter, by the way, Barry Pepper, you're you're coming out of your freezing <laughs> period. I understand Lone Ranger did not do as well as you thought it would. And you know what? Lone Ranger was a good movie. I'll give you that, Barry Pepper. Um you can tweet us, which is a, a form of social media. That's on your he laptop. He might not be computer. aware, yeah, because he's... Uh, it is within 280 characters, because the president is now Donald Trump. Barry Pepper, I appreciate the fact that he just went back into cryogenic freezing for the next 16 months. Um, you can tweet us at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Uh, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com, and you can see a list of the movies on our uh, Pivotal Film list and the beers we drank. Because we drank three of them today. We did. We and... ignored one of them, because apparently it was a peach wheat. I'm, which I'm not going to drink. Um, you can also see how you can subscribe to us on Stitcher or iTunes. Um, maybe something else. I don't. I don't. I don't really know what's up there. Anywhere you can find your podcast necessities, your need, your podcast needs. Yeah. 
We are. We will, we will be there. Yeah. And if we're not there, you can tweet us or email us, and we will. Tell us to get our shit together. Find a way. Unless it's Spotify, because I think we have to pay money for Spotify. Yeah, we're not on Spotify because, because it's. You know what? Actually, the, I don't think it's any money. I think the registration process is very complicated. Like, you need to have a lot of listeners. You just, no, I don't think you have to. I don't remember what it is. I, I'll have to investigate it. Maybe I will investigate it. Um, but until then, uh, go see a movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week. Yeah.